Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for tuning in. A great show we have for you today, I believe, anyway. Brian Kilmeade will be here in the 4 o'clock hour. In the 3 o'clock hour, we will go live to Atlantic City to explore whether or not there's going to be a strike of casino workers. Boy, isn't that what Atlantic City needs right about now, a strike. In the uh, 2 o'clock hour, don't look now, but it looks like China is lying about aliens. At least maybe. Uh, we'll get into that. But first, you know, today is uh, Thursday, the 16th, and uh, Sunday is, uh, I, I know what you're saying, Sunday is Juneteenth, so that means if you're somebody that gets Juneteenth off, which is our newest federal holiday, you get to celebrate that on Monday. So please prepare your Juneteenth celebrations accordingly. But Sunday is also Father's Day. And uh, I've been, I'm excited about Father's Day. It's my first uh, Father's Day as a parent. And I am, um, you know, I don't know that we're really doing anything special. We're probably going to go to my father's house and we'll get together with my siblings. And, um, you know, that's probably pretty much it. You know, we'll, we'll eat and uh, joke around and uh, whatever else. So, uh, but it has gotten me thinking a great deal about fatherhood and about parenting. And I was reading, you know, one of the many... News sources that I cite to you on the air pretty frequently is Axios, because there's so many different versions of Axios. And one of the things that they put out on the weekend is Axios finish line. And on Sunday, they put out in their newsletter, they put out essentially a solicitation of asking readers to send in one big lesson that they learned from their fathers. So I thought that might be fun to see what you have, because, you know, I, as I was reading the lessons that the people that write the Axios newsletter came up with, I thought to myself, gee, what lessons am I going to try to impart to my own son and then I, I spent a lot of time thinking about the lessons that uh, that I learned the, from my own father and some are lessons that I continue to learn. So um, I thought that might be fun. Just, we're only a, day, a couple of days away from Father's Day. I thought it might be interesting to ask you, what is a big life lesson that you learned from your father? Simple as that. 800-848-WABC. I'll give you a couple of the ones that I came up with. And... Um, I I know that there are more than this because when I sat down to think about it, and I spent a lot of time on this today, I was disappointed in myself 
that I couldn't come up with anything more profound and anything more kind of noteworthy or anything more that's sort of a, a light bulb moment. So I will share with you in the next couple of minutes the couple that I came up with. But the, uh, these are a couple of the ones that I that the Axios staff came up with. Jim Vandenhei uh, said a lesson that he learned was lead by example. That's a good one. Uh, he said his dad, John Vandenhei, was is a doer, not a preacher. He quietly modeled and demanded three big things that eventually stuck with all three kids. Work ethic, honesty, and attentiveness to family. You know, it's funny. I, I kind of feel like that's a lesson that I learned from my dad as well. Because uh, my father, while he's very well spoken and a very good speaker is not much of a talker. He's sort of the strong, silent type, right? And uh, he's very funny, but it's not unusual for him to be the quiet person in a room. He's uh, somebody that likes to sit and listen and take it all in, not necessarily pontificate. Uh, That's, I think, something that separates him from some of his children. And uh, Jim Vandenhei talks about one of the coolest manifestations of the third is how he takes equal an interest in all three of his kids' lives, regardless of what they do. He pays close attention to the nuances, asks tons of questions, and takes obvious pride. It's a huge reason all three of his kids do the same with their parents, each other, and our kids. All right. Another person at Axios says, celebrate the small things. And she writes, this is Erica, she writes that her father was the most fervent cheerleader. Whether the winds are big or small, he was as excited when she landed her first job as he was when she told him that she raised her hand to answer a discussion question in third grade social studies. So that's interesting. And then uh, this is interesting. This is something similar to what Joe and Ron Konkuma had advised me when uh, when I announced on the air that uh, that I was going to be a father he said that the the most important lesson, Joan Ronkonkoma's lesson, was time. Just be there for your child. And that was what Mike uh, from uh, Axios, Mike Allen, that's what he said. Be there. He said, and I'm reading here, my dad, Gary Allen, taught me the value of being literally present. He and my mom had four kids in four years, so they had full plates. But whether it was driving for 50-cent pieces in the above-ground backyard pool or tent camping in Sequoia, Dad showed up. That's a good one as well. All right. So I'd be curious to know whether it was actually a formal lesson or something you just learned from osmosis. And if, you know, I know a lot of people didn't necessarily grow up with a father. If that's you, maybe there was a father figure that taught you something interesting, an important life lesson. I'd love to know what it is. 800-848-WABC. So what I did right before the show is I sent uh, an email to a bunch of friends of mine that I thought might be awake at this time to see what life lessons they learned from their fathers, right? And I'm going to share these with you as well, and then I'll get to your calls in a second. 800-848-9222, 1-800-848-WABC. Lauren, my friend Lauren wrote, you must buy extra boxes of Girl Scout cookies and freeze them because you're always going to want more. See, that's that's good. And I think not only is it a practical piece of advice, but it's an important life lesson when extrapolated to other areas. My friend Jen, uh, and by the way, I'd be curious if this life, the life lessons that you've got from your own father differs, whether we're talking about sons or daughters or non-binary people. My friend Jen, my dad told me on career day in the ninth grade 
you know, you really need to have a career of your own so that if your husband ever leaves you or dies, you'll be able to take care of yourself in life. Oddly, she writes, it really did shape who I became. I sort of became my own little personal uh, conservative feminist. She's careful to clarify that. After that, I credit that to my dad, who is about as old country boy as they come. What lessons did you learn from your father? One big life lesson, 800-848-9222. Jeff is in Manorville. My uh, my brother-in-law lives in Manorville, Jeff. Hey, Manorville's a nice area. Yeah, do you ever run into him there, Josh O'Brien? No. No? Well, yeah, he's never invited me to his house, so uh, so I can't tell you what his, what his residence looks like. But if you see him, you know, give him my best. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's a long ride out here. <laughs> that it is. That it is. Believe me. All right. The lesson that my father taught me and my brother and my sister. Life, you got you have to be a very honest person. Always be honest. That's... Never do anything that's bad to people. Always be respect people, respect people. Your elders, respect your friends, respect police, respect everybody. And if you're going to steal, make sure it has a lot of zeros behind it. Otherwise, (laughs) it's not worth it. Thank you, Jeff. You know, it's funny. My friend John told me that when he was starting on Wall Street, he was thinking about getting involved in some sort of a a stock, I don't want to call it a scam, because it was something that wasn't clearly a scam, but it was of questionable legality. And he went to his uncle, who was sort of his mentor on Wall Street at the time, and he's he's saying to him, either Uncle Pete or Uncle Dennis, I don't remember, saying, you know, Uncle Dennis, I'm thinking about, you know, doing this. Uh, what advice would you give me on how to do it? And he told him, number one, if you're going to do that, tell the companies you're doing this with, that they can only do it with you because it's got to be worth your worth your while. And then he says you're going to have to sock away a whole bunch of money because when you do this because chances are there's a good shot you're going to get arrested and you're going to need to hire a good criminal defense attorney. Needless to say, my friend did not engage in that kind of conduct. But that is a, that is a good life, life lesson. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. My friend Noel writes, when I was five years old, my life savings was $550, five years old. I, was play- I played poker with my father and started losing, so I bet more to make it back. After an hour, I lost my entire life savings. He took it and went to bed. I was heartbroken. The next day, he said he would make a deal with me. He would give me my money back if I promised for the rest of my life when gambling, I would stop as soon as I lost more than I could afford to lose with a smile. He said, if you're not smiling, stop. I agreed and never gambled more than I could lose with a smile ever again. That's good advice. That's an important life lesson. 800-848-9222. You know, to Jeff's uh, point about honesty, that was one of the uh, things that my dad always stressed and continues to stress is not lying. And uh, I remember, you know, I think there's only a handful. You could count on one hand the number of times that uh, my father ever smacked me around and there was only one time where he really gave me a thrashing. Re- really, I mean, most of the times it's literally a smack on the wrist or something. But there was really only one time where he really let me have it. And it was because I had lied to him. And I admitted my lie and I apologized, but uh, he was apoplectic. 
And uh, so I guess that is that's certainly an important life lesson. 800-848-WABC, talking about life lessons on the eve of Father's Day that you might have learned from your father. Tony in the Bronx, what do you have for us? How you doing? How you doing? Uh, you know, my this is and it's helped me throughout my life and even my career. Uh, is always do the right thing even when no one is watching. And uh, I, I think that that was huge because a lot of times uh, when we don't have any influences or any advice, uh, we kind of know what the right thing is to do. But when we don't have that push, we kind of sometimes we falter. But so I've always kind of led my life like that. Uh, you know, even when no one's watching, I'm throwing that that soda in the garbage uh, even when no one's watching, you know, I help the old lady across the street. Even if no one's watching, just always do the right thing. And, uh, you know, that's taken me far in life. Well, that's a good one, Tony. I do like that one. Uh, that's that's a good one. And that's something that bears repeating. 800-848-WABC. Here's an email that I got in response to my inquiry from my friend Darren. When I was probably like eight or nine, my favorite baseball, excuse me, my favorite football player Ken Stabler of the Oakland Raiders lost a playoff game to the Steelers. I was crying, and my dad laughed and asked me why I was crying. He told me that it was only a game and that it had nothing to do with me and that the world would still go on. I didn't want to believe him, but it stuck with me. Seems trivial now, but I thought about it throughout my life, and as I got older, I understood that he was right. You know, I've had similar moments. I remember there were times crying after a tough New York Mets loss, and uh, my dad uh, offered a similar a pearl of wisdom. So that's certainly an important life lesson. Larry's in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Yeah, hi. You know, my father was all about lessons, okay? But if I had to select the one greatest lesson, not only does it was great because it's so unique, he taught me that you don't have to spend money to have a good time. But he would make a point of doing something that he got for free. One time we had tickets. Uh, somebody gave him tickets to a saltwater pool in downtown Brooklyn. And the only time you could go was early in the morning on Sunday. So on a January day, it was like three degrees outside. We're warming up the car at 8 o'clock in the morning to go to a saltwater pool because we had to use the tickets. Now, he had a great time, and I was eight years old, and I got my eyes burned out. But ever since then, I'm always looking for that pool because I realized how intensely he did something because it was given to him for free, and he felt like he had to take advantage of it. I, you know, that is a good one, uh, Larry. And that actually is uh, there's a talk topic that we may do either today or tomorrow that's in a sem similar vein. I like that. I like that a lot. And uh, that's something that could probably be stressed at all levels. Uh, a friend of mine named Ron, he writes, my dad taught me at a very young age the very important lesson that you are. This is a good one, too. You are no better than anyone and no one is better than you. This important adage has always kept me humble and grounded, and it's rooted deeply in my Roman Catholic faith. To me, it means that every human person is an equal human being. I'm guided by this principle in both my personal and professional life. Uh, he says, "Thanks, uh, special thanks to my dad, Ron Sr., in Little Egg Harbor, New Jersey. And I know uh, his father, uh, Ron Sr., and he, he is a great guy, and it's not surprising to me that he did stress that. John is in Reno, Nevada. John, give me a life lesson. The life lesson I learned was if you can't go back and do things again, uh, you only get one opportunity to do things, and you need to make the most of it the first time the opportunity comes around. 
I like that. So um, make the most of these opportunities the first time they come around because they may not come around again. Yep. I like that. That's a good one, John. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Tom, my friend Tom, work hard, never quit, and be a good person. Okay. I like that one, too. Bruce in King of Prussia, Pennsylvania. Bruce, did they ever find out why... Prussia went around having a, a country that was so similarly named to Russia for so many years. I mean, w- w- how about some more creative naming when it comes to country names? You know, I used to know that, but I don't know it anymore. All right. Well, no no big deal. I'm glad uh, King of Prussia is uh, not being boycotted like uh, King of Russia, Pennsylvania, might be these days. Okay. Well, here's the situation. When I was a little kid, my dad used to take me down to the New Haven Railroad Station and we used to watch the trains, and we go into the station master's office, and they had these little things called seat checks. So, I, you know, they were different colors, and, you know, a little kid, you know, we want to, they gave them to me. And years later, I met a girl, this is in Rhode Island, I met a girl in Pennsylvania, and I said, wait a minute, I know how I can take the train down for free. I'll get a seat check, and I'll jump on the train and put it on the seat, and I'll take the train down to Pennsylvania. And I did it, and I did it a couple more times. And then after a while, I got a job with Amtrak, and I was there for 40 years. And it was all because of my father taking me to the train when I was a a seven-year-old. Boy, that's something, Bruce, isn't it? I mean, you really never know uh, the kind of actions that uh, the kind of consequences to the actions that you that you that your child will uh, that will will deal with. Uh, Bruce, that's a good one. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Talking about life lessons that you learned. One big life lesson that you learned from your father. What was it? This is one from my friend Dennis. We were pretty low-income family. Sister, brother, money scares. I didn't know back then we actually had a hard time paying for food. But the lesson was we couldn't tell as our food seemed plentiful. He had a knack, meaning his father, to conjure up meals from scraps and past day leftovers. I picked this up being married young, having two daughters, going on sometimes with a job. I do remember his father and mother, religious Jewish couple from Russia. I lived with them from uh, five years to about eight his dad, my grandpa, would always tell me to have respect for all people, and I did. That's good. This is actually from my uh, my uh, my brother-in-law, Josh, the M- Manorville person that I referenced earlier. My father taught me that I was so much more capable than my younger self sometimes thought I was, and that high levels of effort, thought, and practice were the keys to unlocking my innate potential. Nearly anything is possible. That's a nice message for a... Uh, especially a young man, but really any kind of a person. 800-848-WABC if you want to add one. This is from uh, my a friend of mine who's a very prominent attorney, my friend Arthur. He said, Arthur, pay attention to detail. Now, his father is an attorney as well. I heard that so many times growing up. That saying was framed and hung by my desk throughout law school. As a youth, I didn't really get it. But once law school hit, the bar exam, an ADA, and then a trial attorney, boy, was he right. Uh, Just last week, we were retained by a client who noticed the detail we put into the physical space of the law office. 
after he confirmed that I had done the majority of the work to design and decorate our space, he hired us saying, if you are so detail-oriented with your space, I know you'll be detail-oriented with my case. It was truly life-altering advice that may be somewhat unique. That's a good one. And that's not some, that's a lesson that I never learned. I'm a big-picture guy. I never really got into paying too much attention to the details. The Fugazi Tom in the Bronx, give me a life lesson you learned from your father. Oh, it's from my father? Well, it's verbal. It's verbal. He would say this, a self-evaluation is a false evaluation. Is a what? You, a se- I, I mean, you broke up. A self-evaluation Hello? is a false evaluation. Yeah. You want to know who you truly are? Ask somebody else that knows you. Well, that's it. you evaluate just yeah. That's interesting. If you evaluate yourself. You know, you're not going to tell what's right. You're not going to tell the truth. It's always going to be good. I do wonder, People though. People have been around you and know you. I do, I do wonder if that opens you up to being defined by your critics. You know, I mean, I, I, I do wonder about, about uh, how, how has that lef- lesson served you in life? Uh, because, uh, for example, some people will, I'm this, I'm that, I'm a good guy. I know, you know what I'm saying? Of course, that's you evaluating yourself. If you ask me, you know, what I think about you, what kind of person you are, if I'm a good friend of yours, you know what I'm saying, and know some about you, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm going to tell you the good and the bad. Not bad, Tom. Not bad. Thank you. you. 800-848-WABC. My friend David writes, <laughs> I think he's joking here, but I'll I'll repeat it anyway. A piece of uh, advice that he got from his father, who I've actually met, who's actually seems like a pretty nice guy. The piece of advice that he got from his father was, don't trust guys who wear pinky rings. <laughs> That's not bad. 800-848-WABC. Uh, talking about life lessons you may have learned from, uh, from you know, from your father. Leo on the Upper West Side. What do you have for us, Leo? Good morning, Frank. Uh, my father died when I was nine on some climbing expedition. Sorry. But from, books, from the book uh, they have written about him, uh, he had one motto, which I was trying to live by. When nine, in a team, he was team leader always. When nine guys gives up, be the tenth one. If well, nine guys says it's impossible, be the tenth one. Now that's that's something you read that he passed on after he died. That's not something that he ever verbally told you. Uh, no, no. I was nine years old, and I because he was always somewhere in in, in mountains and some expeditions. He died in Peru uh, in uh, in South America, nineteen seventy. Oh, so I was nine years old. But the, in the book, they was talking about him, and there was like a head of one of the chapters was when nine guys says it's impossible, he was always the tenth one. That's why he was the leader. Leo, that's a great, a great life lesson. Thanks for sharing that. You know, I wonder about stuff like that. Look, m- my wife's father uh, died when she was 16. So she has eight siblings. So the younger ones, my wife is the second oldest, the younger ones have very little memory of their father. And nobody, especially no father, ever plans to die, right, and not be there for their children. So I I always wonder about hearing stories like Leo, hearing stories like my wife's father, is that maybe it would make sense to record a series of life lessons on video or audio 
so that one, if you do die while your child or children are still young, maybe they can access these life lessons later in life. It's sort of like Jarrell did for Superman. When Jarrell knew the end was near, Jarrell played brilliantly by Marlon Brando in that movie Superman. He uh, recorded all these videos for his son Kalel and put them on these crystals, which uh, then Superman got a lifetime of wisdom from. I do wonder about stuff uh, stuff like that. Uh, my friend Sal writes, My father spent many hours teaching many things, some unknowingly, but the greatest was how to read people. He was the best at it I have ever seen, the greatest salesman anyone has ever seen. What made him special was he was honest. You would buy a case of tomatoes from him even if you didn't need it. He never took advantage of anyone, never ripped them off, and always looked to help people, even if they weren't feeling the same way about him or the company he worked for. But he always knew what to say or do not have the person angry. Um, Then I never honest that craft uh, in the same manner, but I do model myself to continue in a way that would honor him. Unlike me, everyone always loved having my father either show up to their house, place of business, or ours, or party, and it's because he was by far the most excellent schmoozer I've ever seen. Maybe someday I can learn to remember, uh, learn to be remembered the same way he is today. Well, that's nice. Uh, and I know Sal, he's a great guy, and I think he's uh, done his father's legacy uh, a, a lot of pride. Mike is in Hudson County. Hello, Mike. Yeah, how are you? Good, Mike. Give me a life lesson. Yeah, my impression of my father, I could never wear my father's shoes. He's a bigger man than me. You know, bigger man than me. All right, so... He told me a lot of things. So he do, told me a lot of things. So he tell us one. In this, he was a tail gun in the Second War. All right, so give us a life I lesson to, that I, you learned. I went to life lesson it was to be better than I am. All right. Like I said, I could never fill his shoes. He's, All right, so be better I than you actually, are. That's I good. actually went to West Point because of him. I went to Vietnam. But he, he's a better soldier than me, I guess, you know? Hey, well, it sounds like you did okay if you made it through West Point, Mike. Thank you. Uh, you know, I was trying to – so one of the life lessons that I learned, and this may sound trivial, but you would be amazed at how often this comes in handy. One lesson I learned as a young man was never to drink white wine with a cigar. That's important. I mentioned honesty. Um you know, he was very into and is very into proverbs, right? He would he would always uh, he'd love repeating a saying that was illustrative of a life of a uh, a broader life lesson. Right. Uh, so that was always a big thing. He He's quite a, a cook. So he was always of the um, of the school of if you use the best ingredients and combine a bunch of things that taste good, then you'll end up with something that tastes good. But in terms of life lessons like in the vein that people are describing and dealing with people. One that he shared with me at a very young age, I think I was in the uh, maybe only the seventh or eighth grade. And, you know, I had done something to unintentionally upset my stepmother. And he said to me at the time, and I never forgot this, and this is not PC at all by today's, uh, by today's standard, but he said, women are not like men and said that uh, women need to constantly be told how much you appreciate them. 
And that was one early life lesson that I learned uh, from him. We'll do a few more of these as well, but uh, in just a minute. 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. So we're in an era, let's face it, in this day and age where a lot of people don't necessarily carry cash around. Now I try to carry a couple of bucks, but I'll be honest. These days, the price of gas is so high that if I do have any cash on me, I will use it to purchase gasoline. Because usually, most gas stations you go to. The, there's a, a discounted price for cash versus credit. Now, th- that was the case with me yesterday. I had $10 in my wallet. On my way home, I saw that I was getting a little low, and I purchased $10 worth of gasoline. Right? Got it. Didn't think much of it. Go to bed yesterday morning. Uh, well, I stayed up with Carmine for a little bit and go to bed 8, 8.15 or so and spend most of the morning, early part of the afternoon sleeping, right? Okay. Now, you may recall yesterday, I said they were delivering a day bed for my office. And it was delivered yesterday from Ikea. Now, here's the good news. They did not wake me up, and they did not require me to do anything that would disrupt my sleep. So I slept through... This entire process. So my wife purchased, my wife and I purchased this day bed for $427, okay, for my my office. And I still have to put it together. That's on my list of things to do over the next coming days, although it's going to be an interesting thing to see when I get the time to put, put this together. But, you know, I'll put it together. And... Then she also paid another $70 for delivery and another $44 for sales tax, okay? So it's a grand total of um, about 500 bucks, right? 
500 bucks plus a little bit more in taxes. So my wife says to me as she's explaining what occurred, she said, do you ever think to yourself, and I knew exactly what she was describing because this happens to me all the time. She says, do you ever think to yourself so often, I have to do something, I have to do something, I have to do something, and then you think about it so often that you actually think you've done it, right? And you haven't. My wife had been thinking for a while that she has to go to and have $10 or $20 to keep in the house at all times. So this way, in the event of emergencies, we always have, you know, a little bit of cash in case someone needs to be tipped or something. Well, she never did that. But for whatever reason, in her brain, she thought she did. So when it comes to tip these Ikea guys, she's thinking, where did I put that $20 that I got from the bank for just such an eventuality? Then she realized she never got that $20. She just thought she did. She never got it. She said, all right, let me go into – I'm sleeping during all this, thankfully. She said, uh, let me go into Frank's wallet. I'm sure he'll have, you know, at least 10 or $20 that I can give these guys. She looks in my wallet. Little did she know that um, I had used my last $10 in cash for gasoline. So she doesn't tip the Ikea guys that dropped off this day bit. And she's a Seinfeld fan, so I assumed that I knew the answer to the next question I asked. I said, well, did you at least offer them something to drink? And she said, no. She said, I was just so busy at the time. I was working. I was running around. The baby was crying. I was dealing with, I was trying to direct them as to what to do. I had five things going on at once. I didn't think of it. So she looked around for cash to tip these guys. Couldn't find any cash. Didn't think to offer them something to drink. Again, she's paid $500, including $70 for delivery. 4.01 yesterday afternoon. She receives the following SMS text message. Now, I'm assuming this delivery took place around 11 a.m., 11.30. This is the SMS text message my wife received. And then she didn't respond to this. And I said I'd bring it up with you guys to see how she should respond to it. But uh, she did then check the phone number, and it was from the same phone number that called her to tell her the delivery was on the way. This is what the phone, this is what the SMS text message said. Are you ready, ready for this? Hi. This is the IKEA delivery guys. Sorry to ask, but can you please help us with a small tip? We'll really appreciate it. Thank you. So she hasn't responded to this yet. And um what do you think she should do? 800-848-WABC. She didn't feel great about sending a tip via Venmo, especially to a number that she didn't recognize initially. Now she has confirmed that it was the number for the uh, the IKEA guys. But what do you do? Would you Venmo 10 bucks, 20 bucks? Cuz she was leaning I think towards not, but I I kind of think she should. Or I mean, maybe I will. 800-848-WABC. What do you think? Uh by the way, still taking your suggestions of life lessons taught to you by your father. I got an email here from Barbara in Bergen County. Dear Frank, my wonderful father, Larry. Wonder if it's Larry in Brooklyn. The same guy that shared that very important life, life lesson that his father told him. My, fa- my wonderful father, Larry, taught me to be an honest, kind, generous person with a strong work ethic were the qualities he possessed. He also gave me the love of music from the 1940s to the present. 
If you play Daddy's Little Girl, I'll Cry. Happy First Father's Day. Warm regards, Barbara. P.S. I've been listening to your show since I discovered it via Curtis Lewa and thoroughly enjoy it. I've had many comments during that time, and today the memories of my extraordinary father finally prompted me to share my thoughts. Well, that's nice, Barbara. I'm glad that you did, and I hope you will uh, contribute regularly to this show, either via phone or via email. If you ever want to send me an email, by the way, you can do so. Uh, just email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Naomi is in Queens. Hello, Naomi. Naomi? All right, Naomi has got other priorities. Jesse in Brooklyn. Hello, Jesse. How you doing? All right, so about the tip. If it makes her feel better and she's going to lose sleep over it, just send 20 bucks and get it over with. Well, I don't know that she's losing much sleep over it, Jesse. As I understand, she's asleep right now. When I left, she it didn't look like this tipping issue was going to uh, was going to disturb her sleep anymore. But, you know, it, it was interesting because... I used to work, I, I mean, I wish the business that I was in was a tip-generating business, and I'm appreciative to the listeners that send me tips in the mail. That's very nice. But I, I used to be in the event videography business where I would videotape weddings and parties, and I would always greet the host at the end of the night hoping that they would give me a tip. But sometimes they would, sometimes they wouldn't. But never once, never did I ever say, either then or afterwards especially, never once did I ever say, could you please give us a, a, give me a small tip? I'd appreciate it. I mean, one, I'm wondering what people think of the IKEA guys asking for a tip on top of this seventy dollars delivery fee, and two, uh, I'm wondering if people, you know, what people think, you know, my wife and I should do. So it sounds like you're in the camp where basically, you know, just give a tip then. I would never ask for a tip. No, right? Yeah, uh, neither would I. I'm wondering pop. if there yeah. should be some sort of penalty for that. It's true. <laughs> I was going to tell you about my pops. Tell me. So he's a man of few words, but action. He um, lost his right arm when he was about 20 years old or so. He still went on to get married, had 10 kids. There's nothing he couldn't do. Changed diapers, cooked. He was a contractor. Um, he, you know, like I said, he didn't talk much, but there was no such thing as you can't do. You just did what you had to do. The fact that he lost his good arm, his right arm, didn't mean much. He just went on with life, and, yeah, nothing stopped him. Well, that's great, Jesse. Uh, you know, you hear stories like that of people that literally lose their right arm, and it really makes you appreciative for the good things that you have in your life. Sometimes you think you're having a bad day because somebody doesn't return your phone call or because you get stuck in traffic or because your boss is mean to you at your office, and then you realize you still have two arms. So you hear stories about your dad, and it really makes you appreciate exactly uh, how lucky many of us are. Jesse, thanks for sharing that. Um, my friend Marlena says to me via email, the most common phrase, but also the most handy and applicable for a lifetime. Righty tighty, lefty loosey. Good one. Good one. 800-848-9222. Tommy's in Bergen Beach. Hello, Tommy. Frank, you should text back third horse Belmont Stakes. That's your tip. <laughs> All right. And... <laughs> Right. That's similar to what I told her. I, I told her she should text back, don't go into radio. There you go. <laughs> I don't think that, that it's perfunctory that you should actually have to give a tip. It's not, I mean, it's their job. Their job is to deliver furniture. A tip is you know, not required. Um, that's their job. You know, I mean, if he's a waiter or a waitress or something like that, and they're serving food and, and they're not really, that they're working on tips, I understand that. But these guys probably get $20, $20 an hour, $30 an hour, whatever it is that they get. 
during the union, you probably get a hell of a lot more. But I don't think it's uh, required, so I don't think you should send it. But I would report it to IKEA that they sent you. No, uh, no, no, we're not going to report it to IKEA. Uh, I mean, I, I mean, at least I don't think we should. Uh, and I, I would. Uh, I mean, look, I think these guys probably were expecting something. And here, my wife and I, I mean, I was asleep, so I'm putting all the blame on her, but it's my house, too. Um, my wife and I didn't offer them anything to drink, and we didn't offer them, you know, any kind of token of our appreciation. So I don't blame them for wanting a tip. Eh, it, I think it's questionable taste as to whether you should text someone hours later. I mean, I don't know, but I don't, maybe $20 really wouldn't mean a lot to them. 800-848-WABC. BJ is in Queens. Hello, BJ. With a $70 delivery fee, no tip. Sorry. I, I uh, you know, it's one thing you want a bottle of water or something, you know, you'd be courteous or whatever. Plus the fact the guy was steaming over it. He texted you later. It, it registered on the phone. He was steaming over it, you know. Uh, so uh, no tip. No I, tip. I once had a guy... Yeah, I once had a guy deliver a refrigerator in my house, and he demanded a tip. And uh, he was a big, you know, he looked like the t- him and his partner looked like they got parole from Riker. He <laughs> says, and he, he says, look, you give me the tip or I'm taking this back. So I said, look, I don't have a tip. And I looked in the kitchen table, and I had an Entenmann's pie that I just got from the thrift store. And I said, I'll tell you what, I'll give you the pie. He says, uh, uh, okay. And then he goes, uh, how about that uh, loaf of bread, too? I says, okay, that's it, out, you know. But uh, no tip. No, no good. <laughs> no tip. All right, BJ. 800-848-9222. Uh, Marlon is in Brooklyn. Hello, Marlon. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Uh, I make a living. Thankfully, not tip-based. Right, so, yeah, I, w- I would say, uh, A, uh, your wife probably should have just followed it up with uh, some apologies because she obviously went looking for the cash and felt really bad and just, you know, expressed herself that way. But... The second day, um, they respond with a text. I mean, I personally hate it when somebody asks for a tip. I, I just, it kills the whole mood, you know? It's like, even if you were going to give it, it uh, it's like pulling the rug out from under your feet. Right, so um, I don't so, like that either. And that's what I'm saying. I, I for years, I, never did yeah. this. I mean, I would go and uh, I would I would always thank the, the host of the party that I had just videotaped, and I would hope that they would throw me a couple of bucks, but I would never, ever think to say, like, um, you know, uh, like the guy in Caddyshack, how about a little something for the effort? That would never occur to me. Never. And I, I, but I think the perfect response to that text is uh, you should have stayed in school. Well, no, we're not doing that. Let me tell you that. I can guarantee you that will not be the response. I can promise you that. 800-848-9222. Mike in Forest Hills, what do you think? Hey, what's going on? I think you, I think you guys need to make it right. You know, in the beginning, you know, she wanted to uh, give them a tip. And just because there was no money there, now she has the, you know, the ability to send them a tip. You know they they make their they make money off of uh, you know doing that work. You know it it's a lot of work that they do, and I'm sure it doesn't say in the contract that they get a percentage of the delivery. And if you could afford it, you know uh, when I get groceries delivered to me or anything, I always tip them. You know I know that's what they do; it's their job. They're not doing it for nothing. 
And uh, well, it's specified. That, that's a good point, street. Mike. Uh, that's a good point. That was the other thing when I asked my wife why she didn't offer them something to drink. The other thing that she mentioned is at the same time these guys were there, they were delivering groceries and she was distracted with putting the groceries away, and she did tip the grocery guy, but you can tip the grocery guy electronically. She didn't have any cash for the grocery guy, so she gave the grocery guy a couple of bucks via whatever you use, the the app for uh, Podbean yeah. or whatever it is. So you say give a tip uh, just to make everything copacetic again. Yeah, to make everything right, because, you know, you started it, you got to finish it, mm. and, I, you know, I think uh, it would just be a good thing. Uh, all the way around, and if you could afford it, I think they would uh, be happy, uh, you know, to get it. And they didn't really, they said it, like, nicely, whether it's, you know, rude or not. Uh, You know, they're just trying to make a little bit of a living. Maybe they thought you forgot. Yeah, Mike, that's kind of my view. I I have to tell you, I I think I hear what everyone's saying, and look, it is a $70 delivery fee. That's not inexpensive. And look, I can promise you, neither of us is exactly flush with cash right now. I, uh, my wife, has, I don't want to say how much we have in our bank account, but not a lot of money. So um, it's, I think for karma's sake, I'm going to advise her that she gives this guy at least 10 bucks via Venmo. And I, I, uh, I think, I mean, I'd feel better. I'd feel better if that were the case. What do you think? Eight hundred eight four eight WABC Al in Yonkers. Hello. Yeah, hi Frank. Uh, Frank, you know, I just wanted to say I don't condone what the delivery persons did. I don't agree with uh, texting your wife. I wouldn't. Well, I would never do that. But I do. I, if it was me in a position where uh, a delivery was given to me like that, uh, I would tip them. You would. How much would you give? Yeah. Like you, like what you had said was appropriate. Ten dollars, maybe ten or $20. yeah. See that she was thinking ten. I was thinking twenty. Uh, that's uh, that's a good one. All right, eight hundred eight four eight W A B C. That's the direction I'm leaning. That's what I'm going to suggest. Uh, Joseph is in Huntington. Hello, Joseph. Yes, I used to deliver for IKEA, and they used to charge a delivery charge of eighty dollars, but I only got like twenty five of that, and I paid for the fuel mm. to deliver the stuff mm. and so on. So, so basically, I would never ask for a tip. Okay, I also work for Grubhub, DoorDash, and Uber, delivering food. Now, that's being like a waiter. I would go to the restaurant, pick the food up, and deliver it to a customer's house. And a lot of times, I do not get tips. And and I'm paying for the fuel Mm. as well. I'm paying for the fuel to make this delivery to this customer. And sometimes they order up to $140 worth of food. Now, if you think about being a waiter, you could either tip 10%, 15%, or 20%. Maybe they'll throw me like $3 or $2. So 20% of the delivery fee would be like $14. So maybe that's what we give them. Yes. All right. Well, that's not yeah. bad, Joe. That's what I'm going to recommend. Donna, um, finding me on Twitter, and you could find me on Twitter as well, at Frank Morano. That's Frank, M-O-R-A-N-O. Uh, Ikea gets the $70, not the guys who came to your house. Did they put the furniture together? No, they didn't put the furniture together. I still have to do it. So (laughs) I hope those guys will come back and tip me when I put it together. Uh, You know tipping them was the move. Two wrongs don't make a right. Make it right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where I'm leaning, is that I don't like what they did in texting her asking for a tip, but 
I I think we should tip anyway. That's sort of where I come down on this. Matt Blaze, do you have anything to add? Yeah, I was going to say, if they didn't set up the furniture and all they did was bring it to your house. Right, that's what she said. It wasn't really, it really wasn't a complicated thing. I mean, they just carried it into one room and dropped it there. Right, why should, why should you tip them? That's Mm. my view. I'm, and I'm, I'm all for tipping. I had guys putting a fence in my house two weeks ago, four guys. I tipped each guy 50 bucks. Each guy. They were there all day. And they did a lot of work. So I tipped them very well. Right. For what they did. Right. Well, when we had movers, I was very impressed with the movers. I think we gave them a a lot, a very, very heavy, heavy tip. But so you say at this point, don't tip. No. Don't tip anything. I wouldn't. It's Interesting. Like, you, when you go to a, like a regular pizza place, you order two slices and there's a tip jar on the counter. Do you tip? I usually, you know what I'll do? If you have change, I mean, that, yes. that you just use, yeah. like... Yeah, I'll throw whatever extra. change I have left in the in the tip jar, usually. Right. Uh, now, if it's a bartender at a party, what I'll do is... Uh, he, this is what I do, and this screwed me last Sunday at this loud party, which should never take place on a, <laughs> on a Sunday. This is what I'll do when there's a bartender with a tip jar at a party. I will give them $20 at the beginning of the night so they don't forget me, Right. right. And, and that's that, like the move. That that's what I do yeah. always. Well, that's fail. the move. So you know you'll get your drinks. The, absolutely right. right. And trust me, I'm night. not a guy that wants to wait for my my drinks. And um, then I see the table that they put us at. It was next to a different bar. So I had tipped. <laughs> I had tipped a bartender on one end of the room, and then they stand they stand me next to this other bar. So now I'm not going to go to the other end of the bar just to get my drinks. The other end of the restaurant to get my drinks all night, even though I've invested twenty dollars towards that. So I, then I would tip this other bartender piecemeal, dollar or two per drink. So I got, right. I got screwed <laughs> six ways from Sunday on this party on Sunday, and of course the co- the host had uh, COVID, but. Well, my wife and I are COVID-free at the moment. Hey, we'll continue with your calls in a minute. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. <laughs> Other side of midnight. That's David Bowie, Modern Love. If you ever want another musical plan, join our Facebook group. There's also a whole bunch of robust discussions on the Facebook group. I do wish more people would be discussion starters in that Facebook group. Uh, you have Ellen Metzger, who's always great with her summaries. 
You have Nancy, who's topical about 60 to 70% of the time. You have Joel Ryder, who's topical maybe about 75% of the time. And a couple of other folks that are, that are topical. But I'd love for everybody, whatever catches your attention most about the show, go to the Facebook group, start a conversation about it, and engage with your fellow man. Uh, and, uh, you know, even if you're critical, by the way, like that guy yesterday who said that I was boring at the, at the top of the show. Great. Great. Explain why I'm boring. You know, I, I love uh, I love the robust discussion, including criticism. That's why it's Morano Radio fans and haters on Facebook. It's not Mor- fans and lovers, fans and haters. So if you listen to the show but can't stand me, we still want you to contribute to the Facebook group in a meaningful way. All right. Um, I'm going to get back to your calls in just a second. We're going to go to people in the order that they've been holding. But one thing I did want to mention Reported yet, you know, I was a member for years of the uh, New York State Independence Party. I left in uh, 2010, and I don't want to get into the whole situation. You can Google it. You can Google Frank Morano Independence Party. A whole world opens up about my very public divorce from the Independence Party. And then um, I was in no party for a while. And then in 2018, I joined the Reform Party, and along with 2018, maybe it was 20, no, 2016, I joined the Reform Party, and Curtis and I essentially took over the Reform Party from the people that created it, Rob Astorino and others. And then we had that party for two years, and then we lost ballot access. Don't get me started on that. That's a whole bunch of other shenanigans. The whole history of my political involvement in minor party politics has been one frustration after another. But the point is, I was in the Independence Party for a long time, in the leadership of the Independence Party for a long time. And then when I was very involved in Curtis's campaign last year, I suggested that we create a second line for people to vote for Curtis on. Because Curtis didn't want the conservative line. I advised him not to seek the conservative line, and he didn't seek it. So I initially suggested you bring back the liberal party line, like Rudy Giuliani had, like Mike Bloomberg had, like John Lindsay had. And those guys were not interested in it at all. They didn't want to do the liberal party. So then I said, well, if we're not going to do the liberal party, since the independence party has lost ballot access, why not uh, just create a second line and call it the independent party? And we'll make clear that, you know, independents can vote for Curtis on that independent party line. And that's what we did. And, he, you know, he, he did a decent showing on that on that line. Not anything tremendous, but, you know, we got a few votes. Well, now the New York state legislature has passed a bill to prohibit any ballot access party, any ballot qualified party from having the words independence or independent in their name. Now, the bill does not prevent an independent candidate from having those words as part of his or her uh, ballot label. But if you're going to be a ballot qualified party, meaning you get more than 130,000 votes for governor or president, then you can't have it in uh, in your name. Now, this was done in response to Lee Zeldin because Lee Zeldin essentially did the same thing that Curtis did last year. Lee Zeldin circulated 40,000 signatures to create his own ballot line and call it the Independence Party. Now, it's not really an independent party because they essentially just rubber-stamped the whole Republican slate. But if that—and if I vote for Lee Zeldin, I'm going to probably vote for him on this line. And um, I don't know that I will, but if I do, that's where I'll vote for him. But— If he gets 130,000 votes on that line, then that independence party, this new Zeldin-formed independence party, 
gets ballot access for two years. Now, this legislation has passed the the, uh, state legislature. It's awaiting the governor's signature. If she signs it, then he's not going to be able to use the name Independence Party. No one in a ballot access party will. And I have to say, I feel like they shouldn't. I get that voters might be confused. But at what point are voters responsible for making their own decisions? How stupid are you? That before you check a box to join a political party, you don't see what the political party stands for. Is it the job of the state legislature and the governor to save voters from their own stupidity? I don't think so. What do you think? 800-848-WABC. And those of you that have other uh, thoughts on tipping, uh, Matt Blaze is certainly grateful he's not in a tipping-based profession. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morrow, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, I'll tell you, you just heard Dominic Carter do that story there all about the war in Ukraine. And, you know, it is interesting. It looks like the um, the Russians are are doing a lot better than they were at the beginning of this uh, war in Ukraine. And so you're now seeing a situation where a lot of folks are concerned that the massive amount of aid and weapons that the Americans have sent to the Ukrainians is not going to be sufficient to to stop Russia. Essentially, this $40 billion is, it was almost just like poking a bear. Shockingly, the Russians were not happy with it. So I, I said this at the time. It's like smacking a pit bull in the mouth. Giving the Ukrainians aid, military and financial, It's not going to help them win the war. It's going to tick Russia off. And it looks to me that's exactly what happened here. And by the way, I'm not excusing at all the uh, Vladimir Putin invasion of Ukraine. I just wonder, are we let's say they're on the ropes. The Ukrainian, the Zelensky government is on the ropes and they are on the verge of losing to Russia. Are we then expected to vote for another 40 billion dollars to send to the Ukrainians? And then let's say they're on the ropes again. Are we going to give them another $40 billion and another $40 billion and another $40 billion? How much money, how much aid are we going to give these the this Zelensky government before we're expected to not keep bailing them out? So on the Ukrainian front, I am someone who, look, what Putin has done here is horrible. You can't invade a sovereign country, period. That being said, NATO... And the United States, especially over the last eight years, but I think really even before that, they have been poking at Russia and provoking Russia like crazy. And I am someone that said, well, look, what Russia did is wrong, but I think we also need to look at what we've done here, we being the United States and NATO, in leading to an attack like this. What role did we play? 
And, of course, predictably, I've been attacked. I've been called Moscow Morano. I've been rebuked. I've been criticized. People say they're not going to listen to me anymore. Fine. Well, now I am happy to welcome another prominent voice to the repertoire of Putin apologists that have made similar arguments on the world stage. All right, so we got Katrina Vanden Heuvel, Pat Buchanan, Ralph Nader, Aaron Mate, and here he comes, Pope Francis. Welcome aboard, Pope Francis. That's right. Pope Francis has said Moscow's invasion of Ukraine was perhaps, this is a quote, was, quote, perhaps somehow provoked, as he recalled a conversation in the run-up to the war in which he was warned, he was warned that NATO was, quote, barking at the gates of Russia. In an interview with the Jesuit magazine, La Civilta Catolica, conducted last month and published on Tuesday, the pontiff condemned the ferocity and cruelty of the Russian troops while warning against what he said was a fairy tale perception of the conflict as good versus evil. Thank you, Pope Francis. Thank you, Your Holiness. That is what has driven me crazy about this war from the beginning is the media has covered this as if one side is the good guys and one side is the bad guys, when the reality is that's not true. There are plenty of good guys and plenty of bad guys on both sides. And I may get into this a little bit with Brian Kilmeade a little bit. But what he said, the Pope, that Putin apologist, the Pope, said we need to move away from the usual Little Red Riding Hood pattern. In that Little Red Riding Hood was good, and the wolf was the bad one. Something global is emerging, and the elements are very much entwined. And the Pope noted that a couple of months before the war, he met a head of state. He didn't mention who it was, but described him as, quote, a wise man who speaks little, a very wise man indeed. He told me that he was very worried about how NATO was moving. I asked him why, and he replied, they are barking at the gates of Russia. They don't understand that the Russians are imperial and can't have any foreign power getting close to them. He added, we do not see the whole drama unfolding behind this war, which was perhaps somehow either provoked or not prevented. Not prevented. The Pope emphasized he was not pro-Putin and that it would be simplistic and wrong to say such a thing. He also said, and he's right about this, Russia had miscalculated the war. It's also true that the Russians thought it would be over in a week. It's like us in Iraq, right? They encountered a brave people, a people who are struggling to survive and who have a history of struggle. So I was glad to hear the Pope say that, and I agree 100% with the Pope's remarks. 800-848-WABC, you want to comment on fatherhood. You want to comment on tipping. You want to comment on this bill, which is going to be at Governor Hochul's death, uh, no, God forbid, desk, to ban the word independent or independence party from any ballot access party. Do you think that's confusing for voters? You know what? If you're going to do that, I don't think they should single out independence. You know, for years here in New York, we had a party for called the Liberal Party for about for about uh, something like 50 or 60 years until Andrew Cuomo helped kill it off. 
And the old joke about the Liberal Party was like it was like the Holy Roman Empire. It wasn't liberal nor a party. I mean, Rudy Giuliani, who some people consider the most conservative mayor that we ever had, had the Liberal Party endorsement three times. So how liberal are you if you're endorsing a a pretty conservative mayoral candidate? And then uh, the Conservative Party. A lot of people say the Conservative Party is not that conservative. So why are they specifying if the goal is voter confusion? Do you know how many Republicans um, or Republican-leaning people registered in the Conservative Party because they think, oh, yeah, I'm conservative. I'll check the box that says conservative. And uh, then they ultimately found that they couldn't vote in the Republican presidential primary in 2016 because they weren't Republican. So why isn't that label confusing? And, you know, it's funny. I remember you can go. I don't know. I think they changed what you can see. But you can go to the Board of Elections in New York and look up anybody's voter history. You could look up their voter registration, their age, their their uh, birthday, their address and their political party. So one of the things I used to like to do is look up the voter registrations of famous people. By the way, you'll be happy to know Mark Simone is not registered to vote. This guy that pontificates about politics for two hours a day, not even registered to vote. But at least not in New York. Maybe he's registered in Connecticut or something. But uh, Hannity was one of those people that he registered. Actually, no, I think it was Rush Limbaugh. He checked the box when he was living in New York that said conservative party and then crossed it out and then checked the box that said Republican. So even Rush, a very bright guy by any estimation, any estimation, when he was registering in New York, was a little bit confused by the conservative label. So if this goal is limiting voter confusion, I don't think you should only limit confusion from independent voters. Why not eliminate anything that could be confusing to voters? I could start a party that's the most right-wing party in the world tomorrow and run a candidate for governor and call it the Progressive Party. Why isn't that confusing? I could start a party which is the most pro-business, anti-worker party in the world and call it the Labor Party. Why isn't that confusing? It seems to me if the goal is limiting voter confusion, then we should make it a whole lot broader than just the label independent. But if the goal is um, that we should include anything that can confuse voters, my view is that this should not be signed by the governor. I'm sure she will because... Let's face it, she's an empty skirt who uh, goes whichever direction the wind blows, has no ideas of her own, and is willing to go in any direction that she thinks the political winds will lead her to a full term. So I'm sure she's going to sign this. I don't think she should. Uh, but maybe some of you agree. Maybe some of you think that uh, that label is confusing enough that it shouldn't be a party. And again, um, if Lee Zeldin hadn't circulated petitions to create this independence party to begin with, I don't even think you'd be having this discussion right now. So. Tipping, father's lessons, label independence, the Pope, Ukraine and Russia, 800-848-WABC. I'm going to go to folks in the order that they've been holding. Uh, Neil in Staten Island has been waiting a while. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. Uh, on the tipping, uh, I, I don't think it's right for the for the guy to call. Uh, I drove a cab for a number of years, and listen, you get tips. Sometimes you don't get a tip. It's just the way it is. Uh, the price of the delivery, I don't think has anything to do with it. Uh, but one thing that Matt said, which is actually true, uh, that you really haven't really touched on, uh, is the amount of guys that delivered it. I know I had a refrigerator delivered from Costco. It was free delivery and free haul away. So when the guy, the two guys came in, they took the old one out, 
And when they brought the new one in, one guy was setting it all up. So I said to him, how many guys are you? He says, three. So I gave him $60. I said, this is also for the other two. Now, I don't know if he put that money in his pocket and, you know, told them. But when he left, I actually went out and I said to the two other guys, I said, by the way, I gave him your tip. So they know that this guy got his money. Right. I now, think you handled it right. I think you handled it right. Because I, I, I've seen that before where sometimes I want to tip one specific person and they pool their tips. And other times, as you said, my tips intended to be pooled and somebody just puts it in their pocket. Yeah, you would never know. Now, the guy that called you, say you sent him $20. How do you know he's going to give right. me Well, you don't. Of course, of course you don't. I think for karma's sake, I am going to advise my wife to uh, – I'll, I'll come up with $20 somehow and uh, advise her to Venmo him uh, 15 or $20. Although she was also a little reluctant about sending this tip via Venmo to somebody that she didn't really even know. I said maybe, and, and there's no Ikea near us, so I think he probably delivers out of New Jersey or Brooklyn. So I, I said maybe, I think it'd be kind of cool if I meet him in a, in a dark garage somewhere, in an empty alley, and I hand him $20 in unmarked singles in a brown paper bag. I think that'd be kind of cool. I'm going to suggest that to her, and if it's not an, 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 uh, an incredible... Uh, an incredible amount of unnecessary effort on my part that I'm going to go in that direction. 800-848-WABC. Nick is in New Jersey. Hello, Nick. Oh, Frank, how you doing? Very interesting topic. Now, if I were you, uh, I would not give them anything, especially since they had the nerve to uh, text you to ask for the money. Uh, I, I once had a guy from Craigslist do some work on my car, on my, on my truck for some repair, some damage, and they did a, uh, the job looked good. Uh, but at the end, after they left, the job was falling apart. And while they were doing the job, they asked me for a tip for like $40 to help his helper. And, you know, the job turned out to be crappy. I had to file a complaint with my credit card company to get some money back. Uh, so I, if I were you, I would give him nothing, you know, I'd give him nothing, you know, especially since I had the nerve to, 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 you know, to text you. That'd be like me asking you for a tip for calling in. <laughs> you know, hey, here's, where's my tip for calling into ABC, you know? <laughs> well, thank you, uh, Nick. I appreciate I appreciate that. We have our tip jar out, so if you want to send me a tip, I will gladly accept it. I want to be very clear. But if you listen to the show and don't tip, I'm not going to chase you down afterwards and say, hey, if you want to give a small tip, I'd really appreciate it. No, I'm not going to do that. Um, 800-848-WABC. Hey, this was interesting. A customer's, essentially what they're describing, and I think rightly so, as a racist tirade, was caught on camera as she berated workers at a Florida seafood restaurant while demanding a refund in addition to her leftovers to go. So this encounter, which is now everybody is talking about this, took place at a King Cajun crawfish in Orlando on Monday. See, it's always Florida. It's always Florida. You, you ever see the play 1776 or the movie 1776? And I'm going to probably end up seeing the, the theatrical re-release re again, even though it's an all-female version, which I'm not necessarily uh, crazy about. But the character in the play, John Dickinson, who in the play represents Pennsylvania, is the leading loyalist depicted in the play. And he basically says, why is it always Boston that disturbs the king's peace? Meaning, why is everything always coming out of Boston? Boston Tea Party and all this stuff. Why is it always Florida 
that has these weird people and these weird moments. Well, a woman repeatedly called the owner of this of this uh, seafood restaurant a Chinese B word and told her to, quote, go back to her country while complaining about her food. That's according to the eater, the the eatery, the restaurant. So she ordered snow crabs and fried shrimp, and at the end of the meal to pay, she said the shrimp was spoiled. It wasn't. Apparently she ate three of them. And the staff at the restaurant said, we cannot refund it. And she started saying racist remarks. This is a little bit of the, and we don't have this woman's name, but this is a little bit of the rant that was caught on video and then posted by the staff at the restaurant. You're a Chinese, not me. Okay, I got that no camera. I got that camera calling me that. Thank you. You want me to spell it for you? You're a Chinese. Okay, thank you. Okay. Can't stop. Okay, I have her on camera saying that. Who so gives a f- call the police? What they gonna do? You're a Chinese. I say it in front of them. You're a Chinese. I what? We can trespass you. Chinese. You mind? Dying, dying, dying. Okay, you go, you're going on <laughs> Facebook. You're so dumb. <laughs> So she basically says, you're a Chinese B word repeatedly. You're a Chinese B word. You want me to spell it for you. Go back to your country, Ching Chong. And uh, she's mimicking the Chinese language. And again, we don't know. One, we only have the store's side of the story. And as we've seen with a lot of videos of police encounters, sometimes you could see a video and only see a portion of it. And then when you see it in broader context, you uh, may think differently than when you see just a snippet of it. That could very well be the case here, although this looks pretty damning. I mean, this woman goes on this racist tirade because she's not happy with the service for for whatever reason at this uh, at this particular restaurant. You know, I'll be honest, I've never understood People who get upset about something and immediately their first instinct is to make it a racial, ethnic or or some sort of hate filled issue. I remember at the time that you remember when Mel Gibson was caught with that anti-Semitic rants to the cops that pulled him over when he was drunk. First of all, I always point out that when they they when they pulled Mel Gibson over for drinking and driving, he wasn't that drunk. I think, and I don't have the article in front of me, but I think he was only he only had like a .13 alcohol level. I mean, that's not that bad. The 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 legal limit is .08. A .13 is nothing. It's I mean, that's probably what I walk around with for most of the day. So you have, um, and then immediately he gets pulled over, and he starts ranting at the cop about how Jews have started every war in history. You're Jewish, aren't you? I mean, that was just so telling that his first move was to go on an anti-Semitic rant. And same thing with this lady. She has a dispute with the people of this restaurant. Now, I don't know if she was drunk or what, but she has a dispute with the people of this restaurant. And her first instinct is to go on an anti-Asian, anti-Chinese rant. Very telling about how sick and demented certain people are. Um, So I'd be curious to know. If you've been a person in a restaurant that has had poor service, what's the right way to handle it, right? Obviously, you don't want to start an argument. And sometimes, look, sometimes our tempers can get the better of us. You saw that video of Bill O'Reilly ranting at that uh, 
airline staffer. And O'Reilly subsequently said he he handled it wrong, even though the airline was wrong. He said he overreacted and shouldn't have mistreated the uh, airline staffer that way, even though the airline people lied to him and all the other passengers. But um, what is the right way? If you're a customer and you're receiving poor service, let's say she really did get poor service. What's the right way to handle that? Additionally, if you're the business owner and somebody is carrying on like this, what's the right way to handle it from that perspective? The answer to what the restaurant did here was they caught her on video and then posted it on social media. Is that the right thing to do now? I asked my friend, I have a very close friend who... um, plays a leading role at the uh, New York City Board of Elections. And I asked him, well, are people going to be able to, under these new rules, because they had just passed a bunch of new voting rules in New York, which are insane, and I asked him, are people going to be able to vote if they've done this and if they've done that? And he said, well, we'll probably let them cast an affidavit ballot and then just not count the ballot because we don't want to create a scene at the poll site. So they'll probably be able to vote and have them cast an affidavit ballot, and then they'll leave, and we just won't count their vote. So in some ways, it's not that different than the customer service area. So it is interesting. 800-848-WABC. Curious how you handle that from a customer's perspective and a restaurant manager or own, or it doesn't even have to be a restaurant, but a business owner or manager's perspective. 800-848-W. ABC. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. I'm through with standing in line. The clubs will never get in. It's like the bottom of the ninth, and I'm never going to win this. Life hasn't turned out quite the way I want it to be. Tell me what you want. I want a brand new house on an episode of Cribs and a bathroom I can play baseball in and a king size tub big enough for 10 plus me. Yeah, what you need. I'll need a, a credit card that's got no limit and a big black chair with a bedroom in it. Gonna join the mile high club at 37,000 feet. Been done. I want a new tour bus full of old Star on Hollywood Boulevard Somewhere between Cher and James Dean is fine for me So how you gonna do it? I'm gonna trade this This is The Other Side of Midnight I'm Frank Morano This is Nickelback singing Rockstar One of the great songs of the 1990s Right? This is the 90s? Uh, oh, it was the 2000s It's harder and harder to find great songs from the 1990s. Honestly, I try to find songs every day from every decade. 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, 2000s, and 2010s. And honestly, the decade that I always, every day, have the toughest time with is the 90s. I mean, and there are good songs from the 90s. Plenty of them. But it's much, it's like pearl diving. It's much more difficult to find those good songs from the 90s than it is uh, from any other decade, in my opinion. I guess tastes are subjective, right? M- might I remind you, Mr. Dabalina is 1991. <laughs> I take back everything that I just said. But it's based on a song from the 60s, though. Well, it sampled a piece yeah. from yeah, the 60s. Exactly, right. Okay. So it's derivative of a great song from the 60s. All right. 
they are something in China, aren't they? When are the, you know, maybe that lady that went on that racist rant at that restaurant was right about the Chinese. When are the Chinese going to stop? China's science ministry said this week, listen carefully. No, that's not what they said. I'm telling you to listen carefully. China's science ministry said this week that it picked up signs of alien life on the world's largest radio telescope, then appeared to quickly delete a report about the discovery. So China has this incredibly powerful telescope called the Sky Eye Telescope, and it detected electromagnetic signals of possible civilizations on other planets. This is all according to a report published in Science and Technology Daily, the official newspaper of China's Ministry of Science and Technology. Quote, there were several cases of possible technological traces and extraterrestrial civilizations from outside the Earth. The team of researchers, headed by the Beijing Normal University, said the mysterious frequencies were unlike anything they'd previously encountered and were investigating further. Interesting, right? But the report had apparently been removed from the newspaper's website by Wednesday. It was up for a day. Even as the news began trending on the nation's popular social networking site, along with other media outlets. So it was not immediately clear why the article had been yanked from the website. But Zhang Tanji the chief scientist at the university's extraterrestrial civilization search team, was quoted in the report saying the signals could have been radio interference. Maybe it was. Quote, the possibility that the suspicious signal is some kind of radio interference is also very high, and it needs to be further confirmed and ruled out. This may be a long process. Quote, the 500-meter single-dish sky-eye launched in uh, a province in China about two years ago with the primary goal of detecting life on other planets. In 2020, researchers also detected two sets of suspicious signals, along with a signal earlier this year, linked to so-called exoplanet targets. The latest research was also conducted by the National Astronomical Observatory of the Chinese Academy of Sciences and the University of of California, Berkeley. So understand what happened here. The Chinese government, not the people that ran that Cajun restaurant that the woman was upset with, the Chinese government had this giant radio telescope, probably listening to us right now. Hello to my fellow Chinese food lovers. So they had this giant telescope, and it detected a radio signal which could have been extraterrestrial. They published this in the state newspaper. They didn't say this is definitely extraterrestrial. They said maybe it is. Maybe it's radio interference. We need to study this more. And then within a day, they took it down. Hmm. What do you think that's about? 800 848 1-800-848-WABC. All right, we've covered a lot of ground in a short amount of time. 
Fatherhood lessons, tips for movers, Governor Hochul banning the word independent, the Pope and Russia, handling of restaurant complaints. And, oh, you know what happened? You might have heard uh, Bob Brown mention this in one of his top of the hour news broadcasts. You remember that uh, John Hinckley concert we told you about in Brooklyn? It's been canceled. The venue that was going to host this John Hinckley uh, Jr. concert in Brooklyn, they have canceled this. So I think it's clear what happened here. They got a ton of negative press, including from people like me. And uh, this show was going to take place at the Market Hotel on July 8th. It sold out, and it was canceled yesterday by the venue for what the proprietor said was, in part, concern for the safety of our vulnerable communities. I'd be, I'd be a little curious to hear a little, little more information about that. What exactly were the vulnerable communities? Are we talking about the mentally ill? Are we talking about presidents that were shot by John Hinckley? Are we talking about press secretaries that were shot by John Hinckley? Uh, I'd be curious. A little explanation would be nice. 800-848-WABC. Comment on anything you see fit. Um, I'm going to go to folks in the order in which they've queued up. Patrick is in Huntington. Hello there, Patrick. Good morning, Frank. Morning. Uh, I got two things here. Sure. I, I drive for Uber Eats, and on Monday... I had an order from a coffee shop, and I'm going to going for the, to the delivery, and I get a message saying, could you pick up a couple of extra lemons, uh, extra tip with a couple of dollar signs, right? So if you go to the proprietor, you know, they could have ordered this, you know, on their uh, on their order, you know? So he kind of puts the delivery guy in a weird spot, too, because, you know, I, this has already been paid for. So across the street, there was a supermarket. So I picked up a half a dozen lemons, and I normally don't do this, you know. And I go deliver it, and guess what? No, no extra tip. Oh, you went out of your way like that, and no extra yeah. tip. And I'll never do it again, you know. And oh. and you know, and I hand delivered it to her because a lot of times with these Uber Eats, you just leave it at the door and stuff, right? But she was at the door, and nothing, zero. And uh, the other thing. Uh, don't wait until it's too late to tell your father how proud of you are. All right. Well, that's good advice from a son's perspective. Absolutely. Uh, and, and you know, I certainly I certainly will make an effort to do that more often. 800-848-WABC. Corey is in Palm Bay, Florida. Hello, Corey. Hello, Frank. First, I must be down to because I have Mrs. Avellino going on in my head all day today. Well, better better to have Mr. Dabalina than some voices telling you to uh, assassinate the president like John Hinckley had, right? Or the son of Sam, Very who true. received uh, orders to kill from his dog. Yeah, uh, that's that's true. Thank you. Or, uh, you know, some, uh, you know, uh, whatever song from whatever. Uh, but the tipping situation, I don't believe in tipping believe in over-tipping, and occasionally comes to just like happened to your wife where you didn't have money to give somebody, and it just happens that way. For for people to ask you to, the, to give them a tip afterwards, nah, I, I don't know about that. Well, I, I'm with you, Corey. I used to, I, I, I'm... You know, I'm I'm with you. And, you know, I asked my wife, I said, did you tell the delivery guys that you didn't have any cash on you? 
She said no, and she cited that she was very distracted at the time. Sometimes I, you know, we have to stay late on Fridays, so we have to park in a parking garage, and I'll tip the guy that brings my car. And sometimes when I don't have cash, I feel bad, and I'll always explain, I'm sorry, you know, I don't have any cash on me. This way he's at least aware that, uh, you know, I know I'm committing something of a social faux pas. But I, I hear you, Corey. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Joe is in Ron Con Coma. Hello, Ron. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. Um, I'm listening to you talking about the tipping with your wife. Um, two things I wanted to hit on. Uh, number one, um, a lot of these companies, like, uh, what was the company that delivered the thing to you? Ikea. I would have your wife, you should call them. A lot of these companies frown, like Home Depot and Lowe's. Like, if I had something loaded in my car, I try to give the employees a tip. Because with my job, it's based on tips um, at night through the papers, or else I wouldn't be doing it. But uh, And they allow us to put out a gratuity envelope. But a lot of companies, they frown upon, you know, um, having, especially calling people and saying, a tip is something you give somebody, and, you know, it's up to the person that, that's tipping to tip. You don't call somebody. That's kind of rude. Um, on your other thing that you were talking about, um, about how a company should handle if they have like an obnoxious customer or something. I think with the company, instead of posting something on social media, they should have just went over to them, talked to them, maybe comped them dessert just to calm them down. I mean, going on social media is a little bit childish, I think. Well, I I hear you, right? But I do wonder, does that then reward somebody that's being a problem customer? Well, I know where you're coming from, but I was in, I worked in a deli for many years, and they always used to say, you know, the customer's always right, which I didn't believe that because – but we would just try to – you know, it goes by recommendation. And when people start seeing that on social media, they're not going to want to go to that restaurant because they're afraid they're going to be posted on social media if they – you know, something goes wrong. Uh, you know, if I notice a waiter's not doing what he's doing, I'll pull him aside and say, hey, listen, man. Your whole career is based on tips. We're not happy here. Could you correct this and see what they do? And, you know, if they do correct it, yeah, I'm going to tip them. But I think going on social media and publicizing something like that is a little bit childish. Mm. Have a great night, Frank. Hey, thanks, Joe. Hey, our friend Xavier from Billy Marks West, uh, which is a terrific bar here in Manhattan that I am looking forward to paying a visit to. Uh, very soon, uh, is uh, is calling in with some wisdom. Hello there, Xavier. Hey, Frank, what's happening? Number one, the guy with the lemons, tough. That's how it goes. <laughs> I feel bad for that guy. The guy went out of his way. He didn't get a nickel. So you know what? But the, the thing, I, my, my brother and I have owned bars in and around Manhattan since 1981. And I tell my employees all the same thing. Tips are appreciated but not expected. Right. Right. So if hey, and my people and I'm one of the few bars that's still in Manhattan, we make sure our our bar people get their tips in cash because they work hard because they work a little harder. And the other guy who doesn't tip, you're a bore. Don't stay home. Yeah, I'm with you. You gotta tip. You gotta tip. Just so just it doesn't have to be a lot. Yeah, something. Something. But we, 
you know, we clean up our bar. We listen to you. We listen to Curtis. You guys crack us up, boy. Wonderful. Maybe and, I'm going to bring Curtis in there one day, too. And the thing about the aliens with the Chinese, they're definitely listening to you, bro. No, no doubt. No doubt, right? Yeah, I mean, nobody, nobody, nobody on the radio, and I'm a radio guy. I was a DJ at Hunter College. I love the radio. Nobody talks more about uh, extraterrestrials or UFOs or anything but you. And I think it's a blast. So if the Chinese are listening to anybody in America, they're listening to WABC with Frank Morano, the other side of midnight from 1 to 5 a.m., and then we follow it up with Deborah Valentine, and we bring on Sid and Bernie. Yeah, Xavier, if anything ever happens to our promotions uh, director or our production manager, I'm going to recommend you for the job because that was the best commercial that I could think uh, that we've had for, for years. That's great stuff. Xavier, I'll see you at Billy Marks West. Can't wait, Frank. Come on down. It's on me, bro. Believe me. Thank you. I will be. Maybe I'll come in there Friday. Do you? We should maybe map, map plays on Friday because they open early, which I like. When we have to stay late on Friday for our post-show meeting, we should do our post-show meeting, our post-show meeting, post-meeting meeting at Billy Marks West. Are you down or are you going to run out the door to wherever? You're going to hang. All right. Because I have to stay late Friday anyway. i got to meet my, a friend of mine from college for lunch. So I think that might be a good day for Billy Marks West. Yeah, I'll stay. All right. Why not? Ryan, what about you? Are you sticking around? Well, maybe not after the meeting, but uh, unfortunately, because mm-hmm. I have to take a friend to school. And- I see. I see. Alex, what's your story? You live in Manhattan, so you could come. No big deal. All right. Charles is in Queens. Hello. By the way, I want to emphasize that is an unofficial plan. I don't want to see. Everybody should go to that place. It's a great place. But I don't want to see 40, 50 people show up there at 10 o'clock in the morning. And then all of a sudden they, they, they grab their pitchforks because, hey, I thought Matt Blaze was going to be here and he's not here. Matt Blaze, as you'll find out if you do show up Friday, is notoriously flaky. So, I mean, there's no guarantees when it comes to anything in Matt Blaze's world. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Good morning. Hi. I want to say two things, actually. One is that I 100% agree with you, Frank, that the, the invasion of Ukraine by Russia could have been avoided with, with some sensitivity. But I also want to say something, if I may, after that, regarding the restaurant situation, if you'd allow me. Yeah, say whatever you like. About the yeah. Ru- Pardon me? Yeah, say whatever you like. It's your dime, Charles. Yeah, okay, okay. Uh, is that what it is, still a dime? <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> Anyways, um, Bill O'Reilly, who I listen to almost all the time, and he's a brilliant man, was positive that Russia wasn't going to invade. I'm not at all implying that I'm smarter than O'Reilly, but I felt 95% he will invade. Why? I used to listen to the John Batchelor show on a different station. Mm, not familiar with and, him. Pardon me? No, nothing. Go ahead. I'm sure, I'm sure you know who he is. Yeah. Anyways, and he had this Russian professor, an expert in Russia, who explained in, this is years ago, Russian's perspective that the West is not really considerate of the feelings and so on. So why did I feel that Russia, Putin was going to invade? Because I was thinking it, it, cops, when they want to catch a criminal, to think how the criminal thinks. So I was thinking, how does Putin think? He's a real patriot. And to him, the biggest disaster that ever happened in the 20th century, according to his quote, I'm not quoting exactly, is that uh, you know the, the Soviet Union falling apart. So for him to get back to his territory is important. Bill O'Reilly's logic that there's no sense in attacking, it's just stupid. No, for him it's so important. 
So and it could have been avoided. Now, I believe that Putin was thinking, I mean, not a psychiatrist, a psychologist, but he was projecting, meaning he would attack uh, NATO if he could, if he had the power to win. So NATO felt, well, come on, stop the, stop the stupidity. We're not here to attack, we're defense. Yeah, but you don't know what Putin is thinking. Putin would attack if he was NATO. Therefore, he was afraid that NATO might attack. And he wasn't giving any, given any sensitivity, any understanding of his point of view. It could have been avoided. It's a, use the right word. I believe it could have been avoided. But it's very sad what happened. And you have a good point about another $40 billion, another $40 billion, Where does it end? That's right. Um, That's right. And, uh, and oh, Charles, thanks for the call there. You said a great deal there, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't agree with. But... Uh, Ask the people of Yugoslavia, ask the folks in the Balkans if they think NATO invades other countries. I'll, I'll leave it at that. I don't want to relitigate the whole Balkan war, but uh, NATO is not as much of a strictly defensive alliance as folks like General Wesley Clark, who I'm trying to get back on the show, by the way, but as, as folks like General Wesley Clark have made it out to be. Let me tell you what's Hey, speaking of tipping, see, the thing is, that what, I, I'm going to urge my wife to tip this guy. That's the that's the bottom line. I'm I'm done. My decision is made. I'm going to come up with twenty dollars, give it to her, and have her Venmo this guy. That's my what I'm going to do. But what irks me about it is the asking for it. That's what what kills me a little bit. And it's funny. I've I've always felt that tips should be given, not asked for. And I remember one time. This is maybe about ten years ago. I was in Atlantic City, and I was playing blackjack at the. Um, Borgata. And, you know, you got to watch these casino dealers because sometimes they make mistakes and sometimes they make mistakes where they forget to pay you when they should. And that's why you got to watch them. I always watch them. And you got to know the rules of the game you're playing. So a woman had, uh, we were all playing blackjack. It's a full table, four or five of us. And a woman had a side bet. And it was one of those side bets. You should never make those side bets. They're not good side bets. But it was one of those side bets in addition to the main game where I don't remember the circumstances of this particular side bet, but it depended on the spread between the dealer's cards and your cards. And the woman won. The woman won. And she didn't realize that she won. And so there was a gentleman um, next to her, and he said to the dealer, why did you not pay her on that? And then the dealer said, oh, okay, here's $25. And he said, no, 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 that's supposed to be $100, $100. And he pointed out where on the rules, because it says it right on the felt, it's supposed to be $100 you're supposed to give her. And sure enough, he was right. The dealer had to give her $100. And the woman was thrilled. But I thought the guy that helped her, he behaved a little obnoxiously. He said to the lady who he had just gotten this $100 for, he said, oh, that's all right. Don't tip me, honey. Uh, I'm okay. I, I, you know, next time I'll just keep my mouth shut. And um, I really felt like, like, I mean, she, of course, should have tipped him because without him, she wouldn't be $100 richer. But I thought that was a little low class to do that. All right, 800-848-9222. We'll continue with your calls in a moment. We have open phone lines, seven open lines to be precise. 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Still to come, we do have the AC report. Still to come, we have Brian Kilmeade. A whole lot of other stuff to get to. It's one of those shows. We've got a lot of excitement here. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. 
The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Cheryl Crow, all I want to do, this is a good song from the 1990s. And again, I'm not saying there are not good songs from the 1990s. I don't have to, I don't want to, I can't stress that enough. There are plenty of good songs from the 1990s. I just think it's harder to find good songs from the 90s than it is in any other era. I remember, you know, Johnny Donovan, uh, who was, of course, a DJ here at this station when we were a music station. And then he was the production director. He was also the voice of the Rush Limbaugh show. He and I became pretty good friends when we worked here years ago. Johnny's retired now. I think he lives in Florida, doing great. And um, Johnny Johnny was describing to me, you know, Johnny had a lot of time in the middle of the day in between doing promos. And I loved it because I could just pick his brain about radio. He knew about talk. He knew about music. He knew about production. And I learned so much from Johnny Donovan about the radio business and about radio. And I was he was ex- explaining to me... The difficulty of making promos and how with some people it's easy to make a promo, right? And other people it's difficult. And he mentioned one host. I don't remember which it was. And it was a good host. But he talked about how tough it was to find nuggets of promo material for that particular host. And then he says, and then there's Mark Levin. He said, Mark Levin, I can take any 20 seconds of any portion of his show and make that into a promo. That's how compelling he is. And there's almost no other host you could do that with. That's what he's explaining to me. That's the way I feel about music from the 1970s. You know, you pick any random song from the 1970s, doesn't matter the genre. Could be standards, could be disco, could be whatever. And it's all great. 90s music, eh, it's very tough. Very tough. Gotta go Pearl Diving. Um, but this is a, a fine song from the 1990s. And I, I love the message of uh, having fun. That's also an important thing. I'll tell you, I don't think there's a person that puts more work into having fun uh, than I do. And I mean that sincerely. I'll tell you what I mean. So I... Uh, I used to manage a uh, softball team years ago, and it just became such a nightmare. I ended up spending all my time on this, an incredible amount of money. Uh, It was really just a logistical nightmare, and nobody really appreciated it. And this is while I was producing a radio show, hosting a radio show, and running a political party, as well as doing a bunch of other things. And so I couldn't do that anymore. But a lot of the people that were on that team – they still like to get together from time to time and play games just for fun. 
and to, you know, and it's incumbent upon me to organize these games. And my wife said to me, last year, because last year we did a charity softball game to benefit the uh, Stephen Siller Tunnel to Towers Foundation. My wife said to me, well, you're going to have to organize one of these softball games again this summer, but do it at the beginning of summer before it gets too hot because then it's going to be uncomfortable to play. And you got to pick a place that's shady. So I begin the process of organizing a softball game this coming Saturday. And I tell all the participants or would-be participants, maybe just make a contribution to this foundation to fight EB. Okay? So I invite 77, maybe 80 people. And sure enough, I am having a very difficult time getting people to play. Now, in order to have a really decent softball game, you need 18 people minimum, maybe 20. I mean, you could make do with less than that if you have someone on your own team catch and pitch. But, I mean, you really, it it helps to have 20 players. So now I'm at a point where if you include the people that are, are maybe playing Saturday in this impromptu softball game that I have uh, organized. I have 13 people. Now, that's a terrible number. Not only is it unlucky, but that is too few people to have a competitive game, but it's too many people who've now committed to playing for me to just cancel it. So if only four or five people said they wanted to play, then I'll say, hey, sorry, uh, guys, we're, we're not going to play. Come over. We'll uh, we'll you know we'll we'll play bocce or ladder ball or cornhole instead. You know, no big deal. But thirteen people who've now arranged their Saturdays this this coming Saturday around a charity softball game. That's too many to cancel, but it's still too few to play a competitive game. So, if you want to play softball this Saturday on Staten Island around eleven o'clock. And you're a decent softball player. Don't have to be a great player. In fact, I'd prefer it if you're not a great player. Email me and I'll give you some information because we could use a few extra guys. I'm only going to take the next eight to ten people that that say they want to play. Uh, so you can email me, frank.morano at uh, wabcradio.com. Matt, um, I didn't bother inviting you because it's, you've made clear how much of a hermit and a recluse you are. You don't want to play, do you? No. I got too much to do. Uh, Right. What are you doing Saturday? What are your plans? I got to clean up my backyard Mm -hmm. and put out the patio furniture and power wash. And you know, I get to do these things on the weekend. Yeah, it's true. It's true. And the weekend for us is really just one day. Yeah, people don't understand that. They don't. They They really really don't. don't. They really don't. And then I I always say this. People think they're doing you such a favor, inviting you to places on on, on Friday and on Sunday. And to me, you're doing me a favor not inviting me anywhere. It's true. Uh, Ryan, what's your story? Do you want to play? Well, I would love to. I mean, I did used to do like a bit of baseball when I was in like high school and a little younger. But unfortunately, this Saturday, I'm going to be going to a family pig roast. A family pig roast? Where is that? Uh, It's at my um, cousin's house in New Jersey, in Colonia. Oh, a pig roast. Okay. Well, the family that uh, roasts pig together stays together. That's what they say. Alex Barnard, what's your story? Do you want to play? Can we turn Alex Barnard's mic on? What's your deal? Uh, well, it's date night with the girlfriend on Saturday, so well, unfortunately, I mean, we're playing at eleven o'clock day, in the morning. So, well, you know, the whole day. Well, why not bring her? Bring her. I'm going to bring little Carmine. Um, 
I'll run it by her, actually. That might nah, be fun. No, we'll you're see. not. No, you're not. You, <laughs> could, tell. you could tell the level of enthusiasm <laughs> just wasn't there. Hey, I, got, I have commitments now. You know, yeah, I you guess know you do. Frank. See, that's the thing. He's got to spruce up for the big <laughs> <laughs> 11 a.m. He's sprucing. <laughs> He's going to come in here in a sling on Monday. I guarantee it. 800-848-WABC. Um, let me say hello to Mark on Staten Island. Hello, Mark. Hello. Hello. Yeah, First of all, thank you. I appreciate your show. Full of energy. Oh, thanks. Um, I like to be nice. I like to give tips. But I'm wondering, um, I also don't like to be taken advantage of. But I was wondering, let's say a platform like uh, Uber Eats, they charge a lot of money for delivery. They charge more money for the food than the actual store charges. Then they ask you for tips. And I was wondering, I'm paying, for, I'm paying fees for the delivery. You know. I'm paying... Yeah, that's a good point. I, no, I, I use the Slice app uh, as well because I like to support local pizzerias. So when I order pizza here on Fridays, it's the same thing. You have to pay a delivery fee, even if the restaurant doesn't charge a delivery fee. And then they ask you to give a tip as well, which I always do. Yeah, but I'm wondering, like, who gets the who gets the delivery fee? Is that not going to the driver? I'm like, I, I want to be nice, but I don't want to be taken advantage of. So I'm, like, wondering what's the right thing to do. Yeah, it's a good question. I don't know. I think they do get the the tip, but the delivery fee, uh, at least when it comes to uh, Slice, I think goes to the company itself. Maybe they whack it up, but I think it goes to the company itself. Somebody will correct me if I'm wrong. Pete is on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Hey, Frank. Uh, I was at your event last year. I remember. Uh, is it going to be at the same place? No, it's it's not. Uh, I, I'll uh, I'll chat with you off air. I'll let you know where it is because the place it's going to be Saturday doesn't necessarily have as much seating. So I will tell you where it is. But if 40, 50 people show up, then, you know, we don't necessarily have seating for everybody. I gotcha. I gotcha. And I want to tell you, when I was at the Bagata, uh, you know, the sports book for the horse racing. I, I was uh, on the 6th, I was there of April, and I left the $200 voucher in the machine, Ooh. and they had me on camera. I didn't even know anything about it, so the manager called me over, and they returned me the money. Meanwhile, my buddy Drew had a $100 horse. He had $8 on it, and about uh, $400 coming back, and uh, the, the cashier that found that ticket, I went over, I gave him a $40 tip for returning the 200 I'm a good tipper. And then Drew turns around, he goes, I won. And he left the, he left the ticket at the same machine, and they returned the ticket. So the Borgata, the book room, is very honest. Well, that's good to know, Pete. That's a good commercial for the Borgata. All right, coming up, uh, we will go live to Atlantic City for the AC report. There's some drama there. Until then, help control the pet population. Get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. I don't know where you are on the issue of uh, self-driving cars. Now, I remember when pe- people first started talking about this, people were very leery of these self-driving cars. And I remember four years ago, when, what year is it now? Maybe five years ago. We're driving, my wife and I are driving in Cape May, New Jersey, from Cape May, New Jersey to Long Beach Island. 
And my friend Rich is in the back seat, and we're having a conversation all about the future of self-driving cars. Everyone's talking about it. And I asked the question because I'd just been talking about it with some other friends of mine a couple of days before. And I asked the question of the people in the car. Uh, no, I remember Rich was working in D.C. at the time, I think. And he said that he can't wait until everyone has these self-driving cars and he could just take uh, one of these self-driving cars from D.C. to Cape May or to, you know, where his friends were living in uh, New York at the time and just put his feet up kind of and chill out and let the car do all the work. And my wife says, and I'm just listening to this whole conversation, I'm just kind of taking it all in. My wife says, I don't know that I would be comfortable in a self-driving car. And then Rich replies, if you've ever been in an airplane, that's essentially a self-driving car. He said, look, the pilot is playing a role, but honestly, on most commercial airliners, unless something goes wrong, a lot of times not that much of a role. A lot of the, a lot of the, and again, I have no idea if this is true, but this is just what he was saying. I, again, if we're in a courtroom, I'm offering it not for the truth of its content, but for the fact that it was said. So you don't need to call me and correct my friend from four and a half years ago's interpretation of what commercial airliners do. But um, Rich said to, to Rachel, a lot of what the pilots do is man the computer and make sure everything's working properly. And a lot of that is on autopilot. If you've ever been in an airplane, you've taken something on autopilot. And Rachel kind of takes it in. And then slowly, over the last four and a half, five years, the idea of these self-driving cars or these driver-assist systems has become more and more accepted, especially with the prevalence of the Tesla. I've never ridden in a Tesla, but my understanding is there's a mode that you can put these Teslas in, in which it essentially becomes almost fully automated. And there's all sorts of different levels of automated cars. Very few are totally driverless, but uh, there's level one through level five, whatever. Well, some interesting data came out yesterday. Nearly 400 crashes in these United States. 400. That is not a statistically insignificant number nearly 400 crashes were due in the last 10 months involved cars using advanced driver assistance technologies this is according to the federal government's top auto safety regulator this just came out yesterday these findings are part of a sweeping effort by the National Highway Traffic Safety Administration to determine the safety of advanced driving systems as they become increasingly commonplace. In 392 incidents cataloged by the agency from July 1st of last year through May 15th, six people died. Five were seriously injured. Uh, Teslas operating with autopilot the more ambitious full self-driving mode or any of their other associated component features were in 273 crashes. Five of those Tesla crashes were fatal. So the data was collected under a National Highway, uh, you know, TSA order last 
uh, an NHTSA order last year requiring automakers to report crashes involving cars with advanced driver assistance systems. Scores of manufacturers have rolled out these systems in recent years, including features that let you take your hands off the steering wheel under certain conditions and that help you parallel park. So the order was an unusual step for a regulator, which has come under fire for recent years for not being more assertive with automakers. Matthew Wainsley, who's a professor at the Cordozo School of Law in New York, said, until last year, NHTSA's response to autonomous vehicles and driver assistance has been, frankly, passive. This is the first time the federal government has directly collected crash data on these technologies. So now that we see this, 400 driver-assisted vehicles involved in crashes in the last, over the course of 10 months, does it give you any pause about hitting the pause button on these self-driving cars? Are you any less likely to trust one of these driver-assisted vehicles? Do you think maybe society should take a deep breath before we dive headfirst into this technology, which is, I'm afraid, the direction that we're going? My wife um, essentially said no. She says she doesn't trust these computers to completely drive the car. For her, And I was surprised that she said that because there are times when we're driving that she uses the GPS for everything, including places we've been a hundred times. So and even places where I said, no, you just go there and then go there. She says, no, I don't like your directions. You're not going to tell me to turn right promptly enough. Uh, I want to go with the GPS. I said, OK. And if she's driving, what do I care? So I was surprised that she said she doesn't trust these computers. She trusts the computers to give her the directions, but she doesn't trust the computers to drive. Where do you come down on these self-driving cars in general? 800-848-9222. And two, does this data of 400 car crashes involving these driver-assisted technologies, does that change your view of these self-driving cars at all? 800-848-9222. So speaking with reporters ahead of Wednesday's release, Stephen Cliff, who is the NHTSA administrator, said the data, which the agency is going to continue to collect, will help our investigators quickly identify potential defect trends that emerge. Uh, so I guess that's why they do this, and this is what they're supposed to do. You collect data. You look for red flags, and if there's something that can be corrected, if there's something that can be ironed out, you do it so that uh, we don't wait until everyone has one of these self-driving cars and is getting into crashes all the time. So uh, Dr. Cliff, who's the head of this agency, said they're going to use this data as a guide in making any rules or requirements for their design and use. Quote, These technologies hold great promise to improve safety, but we need to understand how these vehicles are performing in real-world situations. He's exactly right. I love one of these self-driving cars, honestly, because I there's so often when I'm driving home from work and I'm drowsy, and I try every trick in the book to stay awake. Now, what I do now, 
when I'm driving my car is I have an earpiece that I put in, and if my head dips a little bit because I start to nod off, it beeps. So that sound wakes me up right away. But sometimes when I don't have that earpiece in, an interesting thing will happen. I'll be at a red light. I'll be pretty good and not even conscious of the fact of how tired I am after doing this shift. And then I'll be at a red light and I'll not off. I'll fall asleep when I'm at the red light. And sometimes if there's no car behind me, I just, even once it turns green, I just stay there. Other times, if there is a car behind me, they'll go. Now, my wife's car is a little more advanced. And my lease is up, I think, soon. So I think I'm going to hopefully get the similar feature if I get another car again. We may end up just sharing her car to save on some um, expenses. But her car, which I've borrowed several times, if you're at a red light and the light turns green and you, you stay there, you don't move. The car in front of you moves, but you don't move. Then an alarm goes off, letting you know that the car ahead of you has gone, but you've not. So that's a really handy feature. But you still have to do all the driving yourself. So I'm curious, 400 accidents, some of them fatal, over the course of 10 months. Does that make you pessimistic about the future of self-driving cars, number one? Number two, does this say, well, no, the fact that the National Highway and uh, Traffic Safety Administration is doing the right thing here, does this say to you, no, everyone's behaving responsibly in terms of not rolling these cars out before they're ready uh, to be widely accepted? And so now, uh, because they're taking their data collection responsibility seriously, Maybe you are a little bit more willing to trust one of these self-driving cars when they become more widely available. What do you think? 800-848-9222. Let me begin with Josh in Connecticut. Hello, Josh. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Great. Great show, man. Thank you. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Um, yeah, so I, I have a Tesla, and I can tell you this. First of all, no way, man. The roads are despicable all around the tri-state area. Mm. There is no way. First of all, the Tesla, the Model 3, I have a brand new one, 2022, put it in full auto. It doesn't anticipate like everybody thinks it's going to. I I don't. The reason why there's only 400, because people are smart. They're not stupid. They're not going to put it in full auto and let the car crash. I've had it at night. I've done it. I've used it. It can't anticipate shadows. I've had it slam on the brakes. It's very aggressive when you put it in, in cruise control. So when you put it in cruise control, right, that's that's a partial auto. It'll slow down. It gives the car in front of you about a two or three car space at a slow speed. At a higher speed, it'll give it, you know, it'll give the car in front of you maybe five or six car speed, uh, uh, you know, distance between the two cars. Slow down, stop. That's nice, but you keep your hand. Now, the other part of technology is it, it, the only thing it really does is it can't, it can't anticipate like the human. It can't see around where, like, I've had cars cut in on me, and it jerks to the left or the right if the car's a little too slow or, or, or going a little too fast in front of you, you know. And, you know, it has those nice features where you can see in your blind spot. 
it's an actual camera on both sides. You just hit a button. You could see everything behind you. And you, but then again, you can't really anticipate. The cameras aren't so great. You don't know how far that car is, like really in your blind spot. So. I, I got to say no. And you know, I, I have a Tesla. Well, real quick, I have Josh. a brand new model. It's ridiculous. Josh. There's, there's no way. The, the roads are so bad, Frank. They, they have to fix the roads to well, an I, impeccable I standard. You're not going to get an Go argument ahead. from me on that. But uh, let me ask you, Josh, because I've never, I don't think I've ever ridden in a Tesla, let alone driven one. Give me the idea behind full auto is. How does it work? Do you put in your destination, and then, in theory, if not in practice, the car is supposed no, it, to do all the work? Yeah, it, it 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 is. But okay, so if if you do that, and you you can start out that way, and it'll go, it'll start out, but immediately it'll say, "Put your hands on the wheel immediately." Like it'll 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 you could set it so that it has alarms. You can turn the alarms off. Uh, it has like a, a stiffness to the wheel. Like it, it, it's almost like, um, you know, you, 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 a lot of these newer cars, they have that same feature lane, lane correction. Yes. Yeah. I so, think my car so, even has that. Yeah. So when you put your signal on, it'll let you, it'll let you change lanes. Uh, if you don't have it, it'll, it'll jerk you back into the lane a little bit, which, which is a little annoying. Cause I don't always put my signal on, um, you could stand out in front of a Walmart, right? You could put your car in a parking lot and retrieve your car. You could basically, but it would take forever and it uses up a lot of electricity. But you could, from about, I don't know, three, 350 feet, you could retrieve your car. You can even tell it to go park. You know, it'll literally find a spot. You know, these, these more advanced, you know, it depends on what package. You build your car out. But ah uh, no 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 do not trust that car absolutely so, not not so yet the the short answer Josh is not only based on this data but based on your own observations the world should not yeah. be ready to turn to these self driving cars tomorrow um, yeah if the federal government wants to be in control and and you know start you know green deal and all that there has to be sensors out on the road the roads have to be impeccable and then what happens in the Northeast with the weather see. Out, out west in California, you can do all these things because the weather doesn't tear up the roads. And, you know, it depends on how responsible they are, you know, the, the state, in fixing the roads. I mean, the lines have to be perfect. And, again, at night, it's just still I, – I believe there's 10 years to go before it even comes out of beta. Got it. You Got know, it. I, I, it's still in beta. Got there's it. Josh, no great call. Very informative. Thank you. Let me get some other people to weigh in. And if you want to comment, you can. 800-848-9222-123. Four open lines. 1-800-848-WABC. Aaron is in the Garden State. Hello, Aaron. Hi. So Hi. I would like to agree somewhat with the last caller who's saying that uh, it's a bit early to go and fully put your trust behind the computer driving your car. Um, and to this point that uh, in a place like California, it's mostly clear weather and a lot easier for the car sensors to, you know, to, to, to see where it's, where it's going. And, and the roads are also smoother ride. I think also um, in a place, let's say, like New York City, for example, it's very densely populated, small streets, a lot of a lot of cars parked closely together and everything. I think it's just too 
I, I would vouch to say that I don't think it, it would ever be safe enough to fully put your trust behind a uh, self-driving car. Never. Just think Never, that. you say. No, I just think it, there's too many factors involved in in, in a moving vehicle. I, I don't think it's, you know, it's one thing a plane, you know, it's, you got so much room uh, to, to fly if something goes a little wrong. Okay, so you adjust to the right, to the left, up, down. I mean, you you don't have such leeway when you're driving a car in a street. Wonderful. Well, it makes sense, Aaron. Thank you. Curious if people, if there's anybody out there, especially another Tesla driver that feels differently. 800-848-9222. Bryce is in Brooklyn. Hello, Bryce. Yes, hello, Frank. How you doing? Great. Great. Love the show. Thank you. Um, while, while it's a great technology, I'm not comfortable with it. Like today, I had to dodge two different accidents. One on the motorcycle, he came from the, uh, his lane and came into oncoming traffic. I had to swell, serve and, and dodge him. Another one, a lady didn't see me, and she was about to switch lane into my lane. I had to honk, swerve, and dodge her. Like, can I vehicle honk? Sometimes there are times where I may not have to make the driving maneuver, and I can just get around, you know. And uh, it doesn't, I don't think it's going to be able to react. And also the road condition, you have to take your accountability for the road condition. I mean, you can make the analogy to an airplane. Like since the beginning of time, airplane has been, I guess, autopilot or, you know, been self-driven. But since the beginning of cars, since the invention of vehicle, it's been driven by man. And with an airplane, you don't, you have air traffic control. You don't have to take, uh, you know, taking consideration of the road conditions you know, planes running into each other, even though it does happen occasionally. So I just think it's a great technology, but not not all advancements in uh, technology should be, you know, put to use really, really fast. Well, it makes sense, Bryce. Thank you. 800-848-WABC. Mark is in Westchester. Hello, Mark. Yes, sir. My question is, if you have a self-driving car, where does your insurance lie? If you are in an accident, do you blame your self-driving car? Do you blame your own inaction to uh, disengage the auto drive? I have had nightmares about being in the backseat of a self-driving car and not being able to control it. So besides insurance and such, I'd be very confused uh, driving a self-driving car. Well, it's interesting, Mark. I, I, well, New York is a no-fault insurance state anyway. So, yeah, I mean, they don't assign blame in when, when it comes to paying out claims. Now, I guess if there is a, a car accident and you do have to uh, assign some blame to who bear, whose insurance company bears most of the cost, then maybe that would play a role. And I don't know. And maybe one of the uh, Tesla drivers in our audience can fill us in. 800-848-9222. Uh, by the way, somebody also told me that the Teslas don't have AM radios, which I would cross right off my list of cars to get. Any car I get has got to have an AM radio. And uh, I like my car not only has an AM radio, but it's got the satellite radio and it's got the HD radio, which I like. So I like like all my radio options. I don't want to do away with AM radio in any car that I own. But I, honestly, stations like ours, and I think most of the major radio stations, and even some of the smaller ones, you can listen through an app or through live streaming. So even if your Tesla or your car has a has a 
you know, interface to connect to your phone, then you can listen through the radio that way, I guess. But it's still, it's not like having a real radio, you know, it's nothing like just discovering a random radio station as you're flipping through the channels. Nothing like it. 800-848-9222. Alfredo is in Newark. Hello, Alfredo. Yes, Frank. How are you? Frank, uh, I do delivery uh, delivery for my last uh, 20 years here, and uh, I drive like 10 hours a day. And uh, my experience says that uh, there are many, plenty bad drivers. I would say like uh, most drivers are bad. They don't respect the finals. So I rather prefer to have that kind of car who drives by itself, which is automatically uh, like a computer design than people who drive on the road, that they are very bad. Well, that's interesting, Alfredo. And I tend to agree with you. And I, I, you know, in this city, obviously it's a place where there's plenty of, uh, of bad drivers. And thank you for the call. I remember reading an article about this years ago. And there was a whole discussion. This is, I mean, 10, 15 years ago. I was on a plane and I ended up reading an article that I, in a magazine that I never would have read. I don't remember the publication. But they, they were explaining, they talked to a truck driver all about self-driving cars. And the truck driver said, because they did some trials with the self-driving trucks, comparing them to the trucks driven by truck drivers. But the truck driver said, in words or substance, and again, this I, is a long time ago that I read this article, so don't quote me. But the truck driver said there are just certain things that if you're an experienced driver, especially a truck driver, and you've spent your whole life essentially honing not just these skills but these instincts, there are all sorts of things that you notice on the road that a computer will never notice, that you can't program a computer to notice. And the truck driver gave an example of just seeing another driver on the road that has a weird look to him that looks like he might be a little drowsy or looks like he might not be paying attention or looks like he's drinking a soda and eating a sandwich and not necessarily concentrating on the road. Those are all sorts of things that you can't necessarily program a computer to look for, but when you're an experienced driver, especially a truck driver, because the truck drivers are all on top of this stuff, they they notice that stuff. They can keep an eye on it. So, um, so it is interesting. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Moisha is in New Jersey. Hello, Moisha. How are you, Frank? Great. Okay, so my my first point is I completely agree with Alfred. There's so many drivers. I look and I see them on texting on their phone, and I'm like, if only you had a self-driving car, I'd feel a lot safer driving on the same highway. Yes, same thing. By the way, Moisha, have you noticed that, at least in New York, I don't know how it is in the Garden State, but have you noticed... Over the last two years, they have stopped enforcing uh, texting while driving laws. I, I have noticed, uh, they, I feel like they used to pull you over for touching your phone. And it, if you were trying to program something into the GPS, now I feel like people text their whole ride. And I don't see people getting pulled. I, I don't hear any stories of people getting pulled over for texting while driving anymore. I agree. It's, it's yeah, it's ridiculous. I think that everyone it would be a lot safer if people who instead of texting and driving, their cars just drive drove for them. Right. right. I would feel safer. And also, I was just curious about the the statistic of four hundred accidents. Um, I'm just curious, like the the context of that, meaning like 
how many self-driving cars are actually on the road and how many accidents are there in the past 10 months from regular driving cars? That That is a great question. And the, the answer is I have no idea. Um, because I, I think w- people who drive the Tesla, you have the option of putting it in self-driving mode or not putting it in self-driving mode. So I think that first question is tough to answer, is how many self-driving mo- uh, cars are on the road. I don't think we know the answer to that because you don't know if someone's using a Tesla, if they're using it in self-driving mode or if they're using it totally manually. And I also don't know how many accidents are uh, have to do with no, with no self-driving. Both great questions. I'm going to research it a bit, uh, but I don't know. Uh, but I appreciate you raising that. I wish I could be more helpful. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Anthony in Liberty. Hello, Anthony. How you doing? Um, anyone who wants a self-driving car drives, drives them is, a, is an, a moron. Because there's no way that a, a brain of a, a computer is a brain of a person. There's so many situations. I drove over a million miles in my life, and a computer will never have the same brain as, as, a, as, a, as a human to go into every single situation possible. You got to you got to be a moron to let a car drive you, because you, you, there's so many situations. I was a retired police officer, and I've done accident reports, and it's the craziest stories you couldn't even think of in your brain that the computer can never can have in its brain to, to get you out, out of an accident. Well, uh, if, you really, if, you really, if you really think about it. You got to be crazy to let this car drive you. So, needless to say, you're. you're, so many you're situations, I can't even think of any needless situations. To, needless to say, you're not on the wait list for a Tesla anytime soon. No, Tesla's fine, but a self-driving car, I think you're an idiot. Well, I mean, but like, the cars that are that we're talking about here. Most of them, I think, are Teslas in self-driving mode. I don't think you can go and buy a car, at this point anyway, as a consumer. Maybe some cities are experimenting with this around the world. But I think at this point, I don't think you can go to the car dealership and uh, buy – you can buy a hybrid. You can buy an old-fashioned car. I don't think you can buy a car that's fully automated. Don't even give me a steering wheel. Don't even give me a steering wheel. Just give me one fully automated. I don't care what it costs. I don't think you can do that yet. I think we're close to that, but I don't think you're there yet. 800-848-9222. We're going to do one or two more calls, and then we'll go to the AC report. Brian is in Bayonne. Hello, Brian. Hi. Um, just wanted to uh, mention that a few years ago, probably about three to five years ago in Las Vegas, two uh, shuttles slash taxis that were driverless collided with each other in Las Vegas, and... I don't know the outcome, and matter of fact, they were dragging on, but they were both the same manufacturer and the same um, insurance company. So, but people were injured, and I don't know how that would react, uh, that would work with insurance because of um, there's no human involved and on either one. Yeah, I don't either. Well, so as it stands now in Las Vegas, and I was in Las Vegas last year, and I didn't notice this. Can you take a taxi that's driverless? Well, it was a like a shuttle minivan type thing, um, and they they had them. They may have did away with them after the accident, but I just remember I was in Vegas at the time that they had the accident, and made. Every, I mean, in the middle of the um, casinos, they popped up on the screens. Huh. 
I, I didn't know that. I missed that when I was out there. I did not know that. Brian, thank you for that. Hey, um, speaking of casinos, we're going to go live to Atlantic City with Roger Gross. He's the publisher of Global Gaming Business Magazine, also the uh, president of Casino Connection International. Hopefully he can uh, give us some insight into what's happening in Atlantic City. Very frightening news for those of us that uh, enjoy going to Atlantic City and going to, uh, going to Atlantic City casinos. The casino workers have voted to authorize a strike. So we will explore exactly what that means straight ahead. WABC. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. This is the AC Report. Weekly look at one of the most interesting cities in one of the most interesting states in one of the most interesting countries on one of the most interesting planets in this universe. That's right. It's time for our weekly look at Atlantic City, Monopoly City, and a very frightening day for those of us that want Atlantic City to do well and that want to take advantage of the great things that Atlantic City has to offer. As I understand it, thousands of Atlantic City casino workers have now voted to authorize a strike. Unionized employees at five of the nine casinos in Atlantic City authorize a strike if new agreements, with a new contract agreements, aren't reached by early July. Marianne Ramos, who is a union member, spoke for a lot of folks. I'm ready. I'm ready for five. I'm ready for five because it's too much. It's too much. The company don't want to listen. They don't want to give nothing to nobody. Bob McDevitt, the president of their union, Unite Here Local 54, says they are not taking this lightly. I caution the industry not to take this lightly. They need to take this seriously because this is a no bull thing. That's the head of the union. Ruth Ann Joyce, a bartender at Harris. I think she's actually been my bartender from time to time. She says for her what this strike is about is... Historically speaking, we've always fought for our health care and not eco- economics this go around we're fighting for the economics here to help us understand what this is all about and what this may mean for you if you're planning a trip to Atlantic City is Roger Gross he's the publisher of the of Global Gaming Business Magazine and the president of Casino Connection International i don't think there's somebody that's more experienced in terms of analyzing the casino business than he is he was also the 
founding editor of Casino Player Magazine. He was a co-founder of the American Gaming Summit. If there's been any significant intellectual contribution to gaming analysis over the course of the last 30 or 40 years, chances are Roger Gross has been at the heart of it. Roger, thanks for getting up early with us. Uh, thanks for talking to me, Frank. Uh, I, I think your listeners uh, need to hear the truth about what's going on in Atlantic City. Wonderful. So, by the way, if people are not familiar with Global Gaming Business Magazine, what exactly is it? What do you guys do? Uh, we are the really the only trade magazine uh, that, that serves the gaming industry internationally. Uh, we, we cover gaming all around the world, and uh, I am actually based in Atlantic City right now, and uh, I'm very familiar with the situation here. And um, if... So your magazine, would it be read primarily by some of these union members or would it be read by the management at these casinos that's uh, that's negotiating with the union members or would it be read by players or everybody? Uh, we, we, we're a trade magazine, so we go to to the operators, basically, the, the executives who run the casinos. Got it. OK. Uh, now, why, as you understand it, why are these unionized casino workers upset? Uh, you heard the one woman, um, uh, Ruth Ann Joyce, the bartender, talk about how their wages have not kept up with inflation. could be said of many of our wages. But uh, I've also heard reports that it has something to do with allowing smoking in casinos and other factors as well. As best you understand it, why are these union workers upset? Well, it is an economic uh, situation, as your bartender uh, alleges there. It's uh, certainly uh, a, a reason they need to uh, get a raise. I certainly support them, uh, you know, with, with the uh, – with the inflation and everything that's going on, uh, yeah, they are underpaid. So, so it's certainly an economic situation. The union needs to to focus on the economics uh, and, and get their people raises. In the past, as she said, they've focused on benefits and things like that. But right now, it's just a just a financial situation where they, they need more money. And the casinos understand that. The casinos are are ready to give them a raise. But as usual, Bob McDevitt, uh, you know, is focusing on uh, unreasonable demand. Where where he's 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 asking for for the uh, sky and and uh, not really being realistic. Can you give us an idea of how far apart these two sides are? What kind of raises is uh, the union looking for, and what kind of raises is the casinos, as you know, as you um, may may know, are, are they prepared to offer? Well, the, the the casinos are certainly prepared to offer uh, yeah, a substantial raise. I mean, they they understand that these workers have have really gone to the mat for them when it comes to the pandemic. You know, they came back immediately after the pandemic was was uh, winding down when the casinos reopened, and uh, they they've done a great job in in uh, in getting uh, back to work and and servicing their customers. Uh, the the union, however, is, is again is asking for for multiples of of what the casinos are. are are willing to give, uh, and uh, uh, the way they, they uh, couch these things is just just very difficult for the casinos to really really uh, absorb uh, their their demands at this point. So you know uh, the, the uh, Bob McDevitt and, and his crew, you know, are really uh, kind of a two faced. In a lot of cases, they they talk about how much they're they're working for their their uh, members, and uh, but at the other on the other side of the equation, they're working for the casinos. Uh, you mentioned the smoking issue. Uh, you know, uh, this 
smoking issue impacts his members. The, the, and and uh, let, let's be clear who the members are. They're, they're the waiters and waitresses. They're the, the housekeeping uh, personnel in the casinos. They're, they're not the dealers. They're not the, the, uh, the, the people who work the slot machine area. They're not the people that, that do some of the back of the house jobs. See, these are the, just the, uh, just his members. Uh, so, uh, it, well, so just, you know, just clarify that again, Roger, because I'm, I'm a cigar smoker and I'm, fo- and I'm following this debate over the smoking ban very closely. And it looks like they are going to be successful, at least from what I can tell, in, um, in banning smoking at the casinos. But I can understand, it, you know, um, if you're on the casino floor and you're being forced to breathe in cigarette or cigar smoke that you're not smoking for five, six, seven, eight hours, why you'd have an issue with that. But you're saying that these these union members, these Unite Here Local 54 members, those don't include the dealers? They do not include the dealers. No, these these are, are the waiters and waitresses. Now, these are the cocktail waitresses that deliver the drinks to you while you're at the table games, while you're at the slot machines. So they are also inhaling the smoke. Mm-hmm. But but Bob McDevitt supports uh, allowing smoking in casinos. So, you know, he supports the 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 uh, the ill health of his own members, you know. <laughs> So th- this is this is unlikely if they're able to come up with a, an agreement by July 1st or shortly thereafter it's unlikely to include is is it safe to say an agreement on prohibiting smoking yeah this has, has nothing to do with smoking this is just a, again a financial situation for for the local 54 members who certainly deserve a raise and uh but but because bob McEvitt is so two-faced when it comes to you know the 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 impact on his members of smoking in the casinos where he he supports continuing smoking in casinos you know he doesn't really uh when when it comes to to the casinos he doesn't really uh represent his members he represents the casinos more than his members the um, the union also says that four Atlantic City casinos are not cleaning their rooms daily. Uh, Caesars, Harrah's, Tropicana, and the Golden Nugget, they are being accused by the union of failing to clean each occupied hotel room each day as required by the uh, by the rules set out by the health department. Do you have any idea if that's true? Well, again, here's more hypocrisy by, by the union. Uh, the union, when when they came back, they didn't want to clean the rooms as much as uh, they could. So they allowed the casinos to set up these situations where where you you gave the uh, the guests the option of having their rooms cleaned or not. Uh, there's a certain resort fees when you check in to to a casino where you know they add that to your room rate to have your room cleaned every every uh, night. So if if uh, you know if if they're not if they don't want the resort fee, they can they can opt out to not have the room cleaned. So so this is you know again again the the, the union being two faced. Uh, you know they, they they don't want to allow their members to clean the rooms, but now they're accusing the the casinos of of not cleaning the rooms enough while they support that in the beginning when the pandemic uh, you know started winding down. We're talking with Roger Gross. He's the publisher of Global Gaming Business Magazine, covers the casino gaming business all over the country, all over the world, I think, and uh, currently these days uh, based in Atlantic City. Roger, as uh, I mean, it's clear you don't have a high opinion of the union leadership. That being said, uh, given where the union is, given where the casinos are, how likely do you think a strike is? Well, at this point, it looks like the union is targeting the Tropicana because it's kind of the weak link. 
There's three casinos in Atlantic City that are owned by the Caesars Entertainment uh, Corporation, which is uh, there's Caesars, Harris, and the Tropicana. The Tropicana is probably the, the, on the lower rung of, of that uh, hierarchy there. So they are targeting the tro- Tropicana because it, it is, you know, it, it's on the boardwalk, so it's very visible. Uh, they, they couldn't ha- target Harris because it's out in the marina area where, you know, you're not going to get a lot of people walking by, but the Tropicana is on the boardwalk. They don't want to target Caesars because Caesars is is the major uh, uh, property for Caesars Caesars Entertainment. So it's a difficult uh, situation for the union to really do that. So right now they've been picketing in front of Tropicana, and I think if they go on strike, they're just going to strike Tropicana Ah. to begin with. So we're looking looking at that probably toward the end of end of June. Uh, but the big the big holiday, of course, is July Fourth. Sure. It's the start start of the summer season in Atlantic City, and and I think uh, you know if if we're going to look at a citywide strike, that's when it when it would occur. Yeah, I'm going to be down there the following weekend. I would hate uh, not to be able to go and enjoy all the amenities at the Trop. What does that mean uh, for people like me that may want to visit the Trop and play there and hang out there? Does that mean the Trop would would essentially be closed because of this strike? No, it just means that that you, you'd have some some uh, difficulty in getting getting a drink or, or getting a meal. Mm. Uh, they they would have management come in and serve those positions. So you know, it might take a while for you to to get your your drink or your meal. You know, maybe your room won't be cleaned uh, for for a couple of days. But you know, a strike wouldn't mean the Tropicana would shut Got down it. or any any part of Atlantic City would shut down. Has has there been? Um strikes from this union in Atlantic City previously? There have been several strikes, and, and they get really nasty, to tell you the truth. Uh, you know, the, the union is, is uh, you know, kind of cutthroat. I mean, if you look at the history of this union, you might hear uh, there's a lot of corruption in, in, that, uh, in that union. Uh, in, the, in the early 80s in Atlantic City, they actually – this federal government had to come in and take over the union because there was so much corruption. Uh, you know, they're, they're, unlike with the casino companies, which have to be licensed and, and vetted by, by the, uh, the state authorities, the state gaming authorities, the, the union doesn't have that. So in the early 80s, it was, it was a corrupt union. As I said, the, the federal government had to come in and take over the union. And Bob McDevitt is, is a product of that time, believe it or not. He, he has he, – his, his experience in the union dates back to that time. So I wouldn't trust McDevitt, you know, as far as I can tell. Oh, no, I, you are making no bones about your view of uh, McDevitt and his leadership of uh, Local 54. Talking with Roger Gross, he's the publisher of Global Gaming Business Magazine. I remember when the Revel opened, they were unable to reach a deal with the union at the beginning, and uh, that was one of the many strokes of bad luck that the Revel had. As it stands now, are all nine casinos in Atlantic City unionized? Yes, they are. Um the negotiations with the casinos right now are going on with with the major uh, companies that are that are in, that are in Atlantic City, which is Caesar's company, as I said, which owns three casinos, MGM, which owns the Borgata. Uh, they're going on with those casinos, which have this is where the the, uh, the union contracts are expiring. Uh, the other casinos have a kind of a follow me uh, attitude, where you know once once these uh, these casinos reach an agreement with the union, they'll they'll uh, fall in line. So right now, you know, again, it's just these two major casino companies that are negotiating with the union. We're just uh, five days away from the official start of summer. How are you uh, thinking Atlantic City is going to do this summer? Can you tell by the people that are visiting and by the traffic on the boardwalk?
Boardwalk and in the casinos. What kind of summer Atlantic City is in store for? I mean, Atlantic City is poised to really explode this summer in terms of of excitement. I mean, there there's a a bunch of uh, of uh, of uh, concerts on the beach. Uh, there there's some great acts coming in from the from all the other casinos and uh, and you know just judging from from what's happened into the run up to the summer. I mean, the revenues are going through the roof. Uh, you know, the, the 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 city is doing very well, and uh, you know, it, it, the summer, of course, is the most important part for for Atlantic City. You know, if you don't make your money in the summertime, you really suffer through through the the shoulder and the winter periods. You know, so uh, it's a very important summer for Atlantic City and for the union to really you know be taking this stance is, is kind of frightening for for the city mm. and and the people who work here. I know you just came back east from uh, for for the summer from Las Vegas. Vegas. I'm curious, what do you think has really changed in Atlantic City from last year uh, around this time? Obviously, people were still sort of getting over COVID. There might have still even been a few COVID restrictions in place. What's different now from a year ago around this time? Uh, it, it, it has opened up quite a bit. I mean, uh, you know, a year ago, people were were still very nervous about getting back in, into into action, and uh, uh, but now the city is, is pretty wide open. You know, you don't see the masks as much anymore. Although the the casinos are continuing to do the the cleanliness, they're they're wiping down the slot machines as much as possible. And uh, and I was just in the Hard Rock last night, and they they still have the plexiglass up on the table games. So so you know, the the, the casinos are very safe, but people. Are starting to realize that the casinos are safe, uh, you know, in terms of, of uh, the uh, the COVID uh, uh, contraction. So they're very, very much important to to get uh, get themselves back into the casinos, and, and they're they're excited about coming back. So yeah, again, it's it's not a, a great time for the union to be doing this, you know, for the for the health of the industry as a whole. And uh, finally, I'll ask you the question which I get asked frequently, which I always kind of dodge because I find it to be sort of an absurd question to ask for anybody that knows enough to answer the question. But I'll ask it to you anyway. How do you compare Atlantic City and Las Vegas? Obviously, I realize in many respects there is no comparison because Vegas is so much larger and has so many more gaming properties. But I get asked the question all the time, so I'm curious to see how you answer it. Right. Well, I, well, I live in Las Vegas half a year. Uh, I come to Atlantic City in the summertime, get away from the heat in Vegas, you know, which is, which is pretty bad this time of year. So, but uh, so I, I see both, and and Las Vegas is, is is just booming right now. I mean, with with the professional sports teams that are coming into town, the the Golden Knights uh, hockey team, everybody took them into their heart when when they debuted in 2017, right after the October one shooting. You know, the Raiders are now in town. Uh, we're hoping that the the Oakland A's will come to town as well. So you know, it's. It's it's a really different ball game. Atlantic City is a regional destination resort, and and there's a lot of possibilities for Atlantic City. I mean, it, there's there's so much growth here that that it it could become a wonderful East Coast destination, gaming destination, because there's so many casinos close together. Uh, but uh, you know, unfortunately, the 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 government in Atlantic City has never really gotten behind uh, uh, 
uh, you know how, how to sell itself, how to put put the casinos and the and the great ocean we have here and the boardwalk together. Uh, you know there there's you know so much corruption still in the government of Atlantic City. Could, could that uh, still it, happen? Could Atlantic City, even with all the increased casino competition from states like Pennsylvania, New York, Delaware, Michigan, could Atlantic City still be sort of a Vegas of the East, or has that time come and gone? They could still do that. I mean, there are still some wonderful plots of land. There's the old airport, Baderfield, which could be developed into a massive uh, complex that, that that might not even include casinos, an entertainment complex. But, but you know, there's not the will in, in terms of the city government to, to do that. And, of course, this, the state took over the city government, you know, more than four years ago and, and uh, is just driving the city into, into uh, uh, a debt, uh, incredible debt. Uh, the state taking over Atlantic City was the worst thing that could happen. But you know, at the same time, you know, the reason they took over Atlantic City was because the, the local people don't mm. really understand how 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 to put a, together a successful uh, you know destination. So you know, it, it's it's kind of a uh, you know. Uh, a, a ridiculous situation when the state comes in, you know, to take over a situation and makes it worse. <laughs> Roger, we're going to have to end it there. If you want to check out uh, Global Gaming Business Magazine, you can go to ggbmagazine.com. There's some interesting stuff on there. Roger, I hope we could talk again. I appreciate you getting up early for us. Sure, anytime, Frank. Nice talking to you. Thank you. 800-848-9222. If you want to comment, 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. Super freak himself. Uh, this is the other side of midnight. Coming up next hour, uh, we're going to talk with Brian Kilmeade, uh, one of my favorite people to talk to. He wants to come on every week now. And you know what? I'm happy to have him. Great guy. Uh, one of the, uh, first of all, nice guy, a smart guy, and uh, a very talented broadcaster. And uh, one of the, um, really one of the most accomplished people in our industry right now. Uh, so I'm flattered that he is interested in coming on this show each and every week. So we're happy to have him. All right, um, so one of my least favorite gifts in the world is um, a gift card or a gift certificate, and I've explained why before, but essentially because I lose them, and number two, because it, it, it forces you to go to one of these places. So whenever I get a gift card, um, one, I know it's not from somebody that listens to the show, but whenever I get a gift card, I immediately give it to my wife. Because she is responsible with her use of these gift cards. So someone gave me recently a Home Depot gift card. And she, uh, I gave it to my wife. 
My wife goes to Home Depot last Friday when I'm at the Talkers Convention to buy some plants. She goes and buys the plants. And the way Home Depot, at least the one by us, works is there's an outdoor area where they have things like plants, and then there's an indoor area. She goes to the outdoor area, and she loads her cart up with plants. And she's got it fixed. She's got it covered with this gift card. She goes, and uh, they tell her, oh, sorry, we're having a problem with our computer. We're not able to take gift cards or, I forget what they said, gift cards or credit cards right now. We can only take debit cards or cash. And she said, well, what if I pay inside? Will that be the case inside? They said, I think so. But she says, let me try anyway. She she goes to the Home Depot inside area, same situation. So she ends up having to pay money when she thought she was going to get some plants for free. Then on the way home, she gets a hankering for Taco Bell. She's got no cash on her. Are you seeing a trend here? No cash on her. And she goes to the Taco Bell, waits in the whole line at the drive-thru, and she finds they're not accepting credit cards. They're having a computer problem. Goes to another Taco Bell. And they would accept credit cards up to $25. So she was having a rough day with credit cards. Maybe it's time to carry around cash. Till next hour, your influence counts, so use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. tired yet i hope you're not either because we got brian kilmeade coming up in a half hour can't wait to talk with brian kilmeade one of the giants in our industry the star of fox and friends and uh, someone you can hear here on wabc every day from 10 a.m to noon right after bernie and sid he's also on the fox news channel on the weekends saturday nights at 8 p.m and i'm uh, looking forward i'll pick his brain on this january 6th commission and a bunch of other issues as well now you know who james patterson is James Patterson is, he's not just the best-selling author. I mean, be, Brian Kilmeade's a best-selling author. He's had, I think, five books on the New York Times bestseller list. That's a best-selling author. James Patterson has written more than 300 books. 300 books. I don't know that I've read 300 books. He has sold more than a half a, a, half a billion, excuse me, more than a half a billion copies of books. He's written a couple of books with Bill Clinton. He is one of the most sought-after, financially successful, best-selling writers in the history of the world. He is worth an estimated $800 million. And that is why it rubbed some people the wrong way. When he said in an interview 
By the way, G- James Patterson now actually has an autobiography out. Are you aware of this? I was, I just, he's so ubiquitous. He's everywhere, these guys, not just his books, but him, that I was walking around the hall before. I look up, and one of the television sets that we have here, who do I see on it? James Patterson with an ad for his autobiography. Whenever you're ready, Matt. I'm James Patterson. This is the story of my life. My dad grew up in a New York poorhouse. I met James Taylor at a mental hospital. Stole a car once. Wrote the line, I'm a Toys R Us kid. Dolly Parton sang happy birthday to me over the phone. I spent time with Presidents Clinton and Bush. I created Alex Cross and I'm the best-selling writer in the world. It's all in James Patterson by James Patterson. My life story is my best story. Now that sounds pretty interesting. I've never read any of James Patterson's books, I don't think. I don't read much fiction. But I didn't know all that. I didn't know he created the line, I'm a Toys R Us kid. I might buy that book. Heaven knows James Patterson needs the money. As I said, he's worth about $800 million, published more than 300 titles over the course of the last 40 years. That's why it rubbed some people the wrong way when in an interview with the Sunday Times, Patterson said, white... Male authors faced such a problem in industries, including film and publishing. Specifically, he said they faced another form of racism. He said, what's that all about? Can you get a job? Yes. Is it harder? Yes. It's even harder for older writers. You don't meet many 52-year-old white males. This comment that it's another form of racism has ignited a firestorm. So essentially, he told the Times that white writers, particularly white male writers, are facing racism. And people are going nuts. People are going crazy. Among those to contest uh, Patterson's comments, the best-selling author, Roxanne Gay, tweeted, James Patterson, of all people? First of all, write your own books, pal. That's a reference to the fact that Patterson uses a lot of ghostwriters to help write his books. Some people say he's almost like the Thomas Edison of, of book writing. You know, Thomas Edison, sure, he invented some stuff, but later in life... He had a whole bunch of inventors that worked for him, and he'd pay these inventors, they'd invent these things, and then Edison would essentially take credit for it and would get credit for the invention. Another user tweeted, as a librarian, all I'm saying is that my library could replace half of our James Patterson books with books by marginalized authors, and we would still have more Patterson books than books by almost any other single author. Um... In a diversity self-audit carried out from 2019 to 2021 by Penguin Random House, the publisher discovered that approximately 75% of contributors were white, 6% were black, and 5% were Hispanic. Additionally, 74.2% of employees at Penguin were white, while only 9.1% were Hispanic and 4.9% were black. Well... This lasted all of three days. (laughs) 
So on Tuesday, uh, James Patterson apologized. James Patterson tweeted the following. I apologize for saying white male writers having trouble finding work is a form of racism. I absolutely do not believe that racism is practiced against white writers. Please know that I strongly support a diversity of voices being heard in literature, in Hollywood, everywhere. Your reaction to his initial statement and to the apology. 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. Here is my, um, here's my take. And look, I, the first thing you should know is that I know absolutely nothing about um, publishing. I know nothing about the publishing business at all. So nobody should give any credibility to any of the things that I'm saying. Here's my take with that disclaimer. I think James Patterson is right. I think it is tougher for a white male writer to break in today. I do. And um, especially an older white male writer. I agree with that. Second, I think that James Patterson is the worst possible spokesperson to be saying this. You know, a guy that has had his manuscript rejected and then had a comparable and then if there was a comparable manuscript purchased by uh, a female writer of color, that guy, whoever that hypothetical guy is, that guy should be the one saying this. Now, of course, no one knows who that guy is because he didn't get a publishing deal. So the Sunday Times of London would not be interviewing him. But... um James Patterson, who's gotten to make more money than anybody as a as a writer, he should not be the person saying this. I mean, he, he was the worst possible spokesperson. But then here's where when it comes to the apology, all I could think is how how lily livered these people are. They can even make James Patterson apologize. I don't believe for a second that James Patterson was apologetic for his comments. I think his publisher said to him, hey, look, James Patterson, you want to keep this gravy train running? There's no way that we we can do that while if you don't walk away from your comments. You better apologize. I think this was one of those corporate-led, gun-to-your-head apologies. And usually, for a guy that's as successful as James Patterson, kind of like J.K. Rowling, when she made her remarks about trans people that people found to be transphobic, usually you're successful enough, you can write your own ticket, you have what they call F.U. money. You don't care what anybody says about what you say. Clearly, I think, I don't think James Patterson wanted to apologize on his own. How do you explain this kind of 180 in his opinion? I think this was a gun-to-your-head apology. So give me your thoughts on his initial remarks, and give me your thoughts on his apology. Uh, you think I'm all wet? Let me know. 800-848-9222. So uh, James Patterson is very accomplished. As I mentioned, he not only has written two books with Bill Clinton, but he does one of these things, and I'm sure it's a fortune, where he teaches people how to become writers. Can you imagine what he gets for that? So he teaches these master classes in, in writing. And last week, the New York Times 
revealed that instead of pushing his father-in-law, Donald Trump, to concede defeat to Joe Biden in the 2020 election, what Jared Kushner was doing was taking an online masterclass from who? James Patterson to inform the work on his own memoirs. So in the course of a two-week stretch after the election, that's what Jared Kushner was doing. He secretly batted out 40,000 words of a first draft of his memoir after taking this James Patterson class. So if you're interested in becoming a best-selling writer, by the way, uh, I, you know, I should do something like this. I should teach a master talk show host class. But come to think of it, I really don't know that much about being a talk show host. So who would take my class? But in his master class, Patterson, who has written two um, thrillers, as I said, with Bill Clinton, he promises to teach aspiring writers how to create great characters, how to write dialogue, and keep readers turning the page. James Patterson says he's sorry. He's so sorry. Sorry that he was such a fool. 800-848-9222. What do you think? Uh, let me begin with Charlie in Fort Myers, Florida. Hello there, Charlie. Hey, good morning, Frank. Good morning. Always. Thank you. Thanks for taking A uh, couple of quick things. Um, they are working on self-driving trucks, and the rule is there has to be a driver behind the wheel. And we all know those drivers are going to go take naps, and those trucks are going to go down cliffs. Um, <laughs> that's just that. And it's funny that you're talking about Mr. Patterson. I was reading one of his books coming down here last week, and um, I left it on the plane. And I can't even remember the name of the book, but it was just getting dicey, and I forgot the name. Is, isn't that the worst? I've done that. You know, my friend was over yesterday. He asked me when the last time I was at a library was, and – it, what happened to me was similar to what happened to you. I was really into this book, and I was at a, a critical point in it, and I didn't want to go out, and I left it on the bus. And I didn't want to go out and buy another copy because I just bought, I'd spent $20 on this book. I said, let me go to the yeah. library and have them request it for me, and I finished the book at the library. But th- that's a shame that um, that you don't remember the title and you can't get it again. And I, got it. I didn't pay for it. I borrowed it from the library of the uh, complex where I live. Mm. I book. Uh, and I'm not going to tell them I lost it. Hopefully, <laughs> I don't have to pay. I think they donated anyway. And um, my last point is, um, you know, these people that have fu money, it's funny how they have to be careful with their words, even though they got all the money in the world that it, they don't want to be canceled. And the, they throw, you know, people throw around the word racism. I'd like to change our thinking and use discrimination, maybe. And I don't know what Patterson. I don't know the, the book writing world but just in my world i don't see I, there is a place now for a feeling now that white men are very low on the totem pole uh in many places i'm originally from new york and ever since the george floyd incident white men do have to tippy toe a little bit and uh, i don't know if we're being discriminated against or yeah well oh, here's God. what i think charlie great call thank you and i hope you are able to find that book and my sympathies to the library that you uh, so irresponsibly handled their their product of if you're not able to here's my take right look i i, I think it's ridiculous for white males who, over the course of the last 200 years of America, have enjoyed every possible privilege in life to sit there and uh, pass a hat around saying, woe is me, 
right? I'm playing the world's smallest violin just for the white males. That being said, in all sorts of fields, the business community, in journalism, in uh, whatever, entertainment, publishing, whatever, all sorts of fields, it is, I think, a lot easier these days in this day and age to break in if you happen to be a minority and a female. Uh, if you're transgender, forget about it. They'll make you president of whatever job, whatever company you apply for. So I, I think both corporations and government, and I think you see this with the Biden administration to some extent, they're trying to rectify a, a whole bunch of past discrimination by recruiting females and minorities. Now, that's great. It's great. We want a we want diverse workplaces. We want we don't want uh films just put out by white men for white men. That's all great. But the other side of that coin is that means there are opportunities that are being denied to white men who are trying to break into a field. I think that was kind of what James Patterson was trying to say to the Sunday Times of London. Now, um He's the wrong person to say it because he benefited from the system the way it is. But is the way the system is now denying an opportunity to the next James Patterson? My answer is maybe. And I think it's just so weak that he folded so quickly. As uh, Bob Grant would say, he folded like a cheap camera. 800-848-WABC. If you have thoughts on what Patterson said... Or on the apology, we have one, two, three, four, five, six open lines, 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to George in Queens. Hello, George. Hey, Frank. Hold on. How you doing? Great. I think, you know, as you were speaking, several thoughts came to my mind. First of all, if you're a great writer, nobody really knows what you look like or what your ethics is, right? So that point. I think is false. Because if you could write a great story, do you matter what color or gender that person is? Really? Even if you're a corporation and you read the book, you think they're going to discriminate against you based on your color? Well, I, I don't, but I do think there's an interest in recruiting minority writers. Listen, man, I'm a black guy. I don't know too many brothers writing books. And they're not losing any sleep. Uh, well, hey, so be it, George. Thank you for calling. John is in Manhattan. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. How you doing? Great. I think it's, uh, you know, I, I, this racism word is just being used too much. I, I think when, when you have forced diversity, right, and you're, you're, you're putting people into a pool for any reason other than merit, then you're going to have negative repercussions all over the place, and it's going to. It's going to turn over the apple cart. So, and, and, you know, as far as authors, that's the, that's the upper 1%, you know. But more so, you know, in everyday life. It's, it's, it's you know, they're forcing, you know, they're, they're just forcing, forcing, forcing. Uh, and, and, you know, you got to get back to, to a merit-based society. Otherwise, you know, you're going in the wrong direction. Well, uh, you thank know, you. Your color, your color of your skin shouldn't matter. That's the goal, right? Yeah, I, 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 right. I get it, John. Right. Uh, but um, the bottom line is 
the color of your skin does matter. And it also matters from a commercial point of view, right? If you want to reach uh, audiences of color, chances are you're going to have some films that star black people or Hispanic people, right? I mean, it's just the way it is. So part of it is as much a business decision as it is a desire to be high and mighty and, and ethical and PC, so a lot of it, I think, is a business decision as well. By the way, Brian Kilmeade coming up in about uh, 10 minutes. I'm very much looking forward to talking with him. We're also going to do the $1,000 Minute pretty soon, where we'll give you an opportunity to uh, win $1,000 by answering uh, 10 trivia questions in 60 seconds. we got Deb Valentine in the early news coming up at 5 a.m., and then we have uh, the Bernie and Sid show coming up from 6 until 10. Uh, today is Thursday. That means it is Bill O'Reilly Day on the Bernie and Sid show. That is the highest radio segment of the week on our station. The ratings for the Bill O'Reilly segment on the Bernie and Sid show are through the roof, blows every other segment away. So if you haven't heard that, find out what you're missing by tuning in in the 8 o'clock hour to the Bernie and Sid show. Jay is in the Poconos. Hello, Jay. Hey, good morning, Frank. So uh, I'm an older white male, and I'm sorry. I, I feel like – hello? Yes. Yeah. So I feel like we're supposed to be sorry for everything. Um, uh, I used to be a avid uh, shooter, and – the media wants to portray guns as being so bad um, that, that uh, all white men are racist. Um, and to my knowledge, I never took anything or held anybody back from from anything from being a different color, or different race. I'm I'm a son of an immigrant myself. My, both of my parents were immigrants, first generation American, and. Uh, I just feel like uh, people got to stop being so hard sensitive. Yeah. Everything. So, what do you think of this apology from James Patterson? I think he, you're right. It's gone to the head. The, the cancel culture is alive and well, and uh, people are afraid that they're going to lose all that they have over one comment. And uh, it's, yeah, it's wrong. I, I think you 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 said it, Jay. Thanks for the call. I think he thought he this was going to be cancel worthy. I thought this, he thought this might be, look, he's got $700 million. I'm not sure what you could do to cancel someone with set worth $700 million. But I, I think that's probably what he was concerned about. Devin is in Yonkers. What's on your mind? Hey, Frank. Um, I uh, just wanted to say that, like many people, I am so sick and tired of hearing, racist this, racist that. And it just goes to really, quite frankly, illuminate how stupid and dumb this country is that all we ever want to do is bicker and fight with each other like a bunch of little babies. And uh, the whole cancel culture thing, on a more serious note, that's literally Nazi Germany, okay? That's how Hitler rose to power. So we just need to chill out. And the last thing I would say is if uh, these UAPs and aliens are real, I think the best thing they could do is come and just wipe us all out. Oh, God forbid. God forbid. By the way, uh, let me say, this cancel culture, and I'm against cancel culture and political correctness, or whatever you want to call it, it is not literally the same thing as Nazi Germany. Let me be very clear. I am so over all these Nazi comparisons. I, I hate those Nazi comparisons. You know why? Because it, it almost it makes 
the what the Nazis did, it was so horrible. And by comparing anything that goes on in the United States today to what the Nazis did, it makes it, it takes a little bit of the bite off of it. You got to understand what the Nazis did was horrific. It was horrific. I mean, the attempted extermination of, uh, uh, it's a genocide. Six million people going to a gas chamber, people being sent to concentration camps, folks um, needing to apologize for jokes they made 20 years ago, folks losing a job because they retweeted the wrong thing. It's bad. It's not what the Nazis did. Not by a country mile. Not at all. Nothing at all like what the what the Nazis did. Let me squeeze in one more call here, and then we'll get to the $1,000 minute. Joe is in central New Jersey. Hello, Joe. Good, uh, good morning, Frank. How you doing? Uh, Frank, I turned 65 on uh, the day your son was born. So oh, we, we happy birthday. birthday. You're now in our, our target demo. We're happy to have you. And uh, I have a writing background, and uh, I have to agree with the original statement that was made because I think there is a push nowadays um, for uh, minority writers, whether that be, you know, uh, female could be considered a minority writer or ethnic groups or racial groups could be considered a minority writer. Um, um, so I, 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 who know nothing about publishing, agree with you. Why do you think Patterson apologized? Do you think he all of a sudden realized he was wrong, or do you think he was pressured to do so by the publisher or somebody else? Well, I, I hate to speak uh, for somebody because I don't know their line of thinking, but just in general, I think there's you have to be politically correct nowadays or you get your head handed to you. Um, I rather follow the moral compass, a morally correct compass, than a politically correct compass. Mm. Um, But um, I was put in touch a while back with a publisher, an academic press. And, um, you know, the guy, you know, I wanted to meet him in person. He said, no, 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 we'll do this by telephone, send me some ideas, blah, blah, blah. So when we finally talked on the telephone, uh, I said, did you get my ideas? And, you know, he was kind of shuffling papers around. I think he forgot that I even sent them something. And he said something to me. He said, "Um, I have a list of 40 writers uh, who I would consider for books and everything, or I should consider for books. Your name isn't on the list. And I said, well, I've been around writing for 40 years. You know, I don't know what to tell you, you know. Um, Anyway, the whole at the end of the conversation, I gave him like, you know, the five books, uh, you know, that I sent in ideas for. He said, yeah, none of these are what we would, you know, go for because they really wouldn't sell. And I said, well, you know, I thought that's what an academic press was to do stuff that, you know, why would I go to you if I go to Random House or someplace? But um, I think, you know, that was my experience. I'm not saying it was because I'm white or anything, but I think there there is a certain kind of book or or person that, uh, these places are looking for nowadays. Hey, if people want to find your writing, Joe, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, for me, I'm I'm a retired newspaper reporter, uh, 37 years on the job, staff writer. So you know, uh, I mean, I've never published books or anything like that, but 
I'm working on a book right now, and I think that if I do publish it, I'm just going to just try self-publishing. Yeah, it. well, okay. well, that's what I was going to suggest because uh, that's there seems to be a big push towards self-publishing, including some people doing very well with that. And uh, my colleague Dominic Carter, even before it was a big thing, he self-published his book. Joe, great call. Thank you very much for the okay, uh, for thank the comments. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Brian Kilmeade uh, will join me in uh, in a moment. But first, we're going to give away a thousand dollars to someone who can answer ten trivia questions in sixty seconds. If you want to test your wits and see if you have what it takes, then be the seventh caller to 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC, and we'll play the $1,000 Minute straight ahead. WABC. song I wrote, you might want to sing it note for note, don't worry, be happy. Don't worry, the great Brian Kilmeade will join me in approximately one minute. He is a TV superstar, a radio superstar, and a best-selling author, and uh, we'll get his take on some of the news of the day in just a moment. But first, it is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Ah, uh, yes, thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's say hello to Dan in Sparta. Hello there, Dan. Good morning, Frank. Dan, you ready to go? I'm ready to go. All right. We'll start the timer after the first question. You get a question right. We're just going to move on to the next question to get as many as we can within 60 seconds. Uh, What month has the least number of days? February. What superhero is weakened by kryptonite? Superman. Who was George Washington's vice president? Adams? We'll, we'll give you that one. We'll pretend you just said Adams. It was John Adams. Who is the current director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases and the chief medical advisor to the president? Fauci. Name a WABC host who was on the air six days a week. Curtis Lewa. What is the Netherlands also called? Dutch? Oh, Dutch? No, another name for the Netherlands. It's a country. Uh, Netherlands, Netherlands. Oh, Netherlands. Oh. All right, we're at, at a time. Holland. It's Holland, Dan. Oh. Holland. Oh. All right, I'm going to put you on hold. Um, we're going to give you a consolation prize. In general, with trivia questions, guys... Keep, if you can get away with just doing the last name, just do the last name. Now, let's say he thought it was Sam Adams, right? He could have just said Adams, and he would have been covered for Sam Adams, 
for John Adams and for John Quincy Adams and Francis Adams, the grandson of John Adams. All right. Somebody that would not have gotten that question wrong is a man that knows history very well. He's written several books, best-selling books, I might add, on history. Happens to be a New York Times best-selling author, the co-host of Fox and Friends on Fox News, a radio talk show host you could hear every day right here on WABC from 10 a.m. to noon, and the host of One Nation with Brian Kilmeade Saturday nights on the Fox News channel. Brian, it's great to talk with you again. Yeah, Frank, it was great seeing you last Friday. Yeah, you know, I spoke a lot about your chat with uh, our friend Harry Hurley at uh, the Talkers Convention, and I told the folks listening uh, that I'm really amazed at somebody that can have your level of success and still retain the kind of humility. And it seems like genuine humility. It doesn't seem like a put-on at all. What, what is the secret? I mean, you've got presidents calling you. You uh, are, are number one on TV. You're close to number one on radio. You've got all these best-selling books. How do you retain, how do you, do you remain so grounded? Because I think some, that's some advice that we could all use some help with. I don't think there's any choice. I mean, I, especially our business. I mean, for example, the Golden State Warriors, if they're to, if they're to lock it up tonight, they got to start from game one again if they want to win another championship. The minute they start next season as if, well, we won last season, we'll eventually win this, then I'm going to make the playoffs. And I know in our business, we watch all these careers, mm. uh, and they look uh, these people look impervious. I mean, they're going to be at top forever or near the top, and it's just gone. And a lot of it's personal behavior. Sometimes it's just, hey, you get a new news director in, you get you know the, the company changes, uh, the, the, our industry changes. You know, uh, seventy-seven WABC was all AM radio. Now we're now we're talk. If you talk to management at WABC, they're talking streams. Okay. You got to be able to change. Maybe on streams it doesn't work. Maybe on when you have the TV radio thing, people say, you know, we're going we're to go with somebody else. So to me, the minute you start looking around, saying, look at how great I am, or look at what I have achieved, uh, I, I believe you you get your, uh, you know, you get humbled real quick. And the thing is, too, it, all all the success that you were kind enough to point out has all been so incremental. It's happened over 25 years at mm. this job. So I haven't had to move across the country. Uh, this job just kept getting bigger, and Fox kept getting more important So uh, every day. So I'm just saying I'm, the only thing I give myself credit for is being smart enough to know the grass is not greener. So when I was first doing radio, I know I was like, oh, we're not going to be really doing much radio. We might roll out some with Tony Snow, but that's it. I go, I'd like to sub for him. All right, fine. Well, with Tony Snow, uh, I'd like to be one of the people. Well, we'll put you on with somebody else. That was Judge Napolitano. Okay. And then, okay, we'll give you a shot at by yourself. We'll see how that goes. And then all of a sudden, we had started adding stations. We'll see how it's going. And next thing you know, 20 years have gone by, and we, we had all these stations. And the, and the biggest one is 77 WABC because you and I grew up in this area, and ABC is the gold standard. And to be on here and, and not to tell people, yeah, go on, you know, go to the app and you can listen. Now I'm on Long Island. People I know in New York City, I go, yeah, you, don't, you know, don't worry about the app. You just listen to ABC. And to be able to travel the country. And when I go to St. Louis, he's on WABC in New York, the 50th, and, and that's still in other cities. It's been a home. Oh, yeah. Uh, but no. if I take that for granted one day, there's so many great people that want that slot. 
So I have to, in my mind, Frank, I'm just trying to hold that slot every day. Uh, Sunday is uh, Father's Day. I know you've spoken a great deal about uh, fatherhood, and uh, you have uh, you, you've written about it, spoken about it on TV and radio. You're a father of three. This is my first Father's Day as a father. So give me some advice now that I'm in the Father's Club. What, what do we fathers do on Father's Day? Uh-huh. Uh, well, how, how long have you been a dad? Six uh, Six months. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, it's a lot different six months than six, then 12, then 18, then 22. My, my kids are now, um, I go 18, 21, 24, uh, 25, excuse me. So it's a lot different now. Um, I mean, uh, to me, I should be giving presents to them. Mm. It's by far uh, the most rewarding and the most natural. I'm not saying I'm naturally good at it, but in most... The natural thing, for example, like when we're coming up in our 20s, you're thinking to yourself, I want to move my career, I want to get a house, mm-hmm. you want to meet that right person. This is the only time where it's natural to stop thinking about yourself on a daily basis. All you do is think about them. And if they're having a bad day, they're struggling in school, they're struggling with friends, they're struggling in sports, you can't get out of your head. And it's, just, and it's almost a good feeling to like care about somebody else so much more than yourself um, I, I was almost relieved that it was instinctive. And I felt the more I talk to people, it's the same thing. You just, every time you're with your friends now, you never talk in the beginning. It's, you talk about yourself, maybe in your twenties. Now, all you do is talk about your kids and the challenges and, and how they're interacting. And if they get a new friend and they have a great relationship or if they make a team, it kind of makes your week, your day, your year. So it's, it's good to care about something else much more than yourself, naturally. Uh, let me t- ask you about what's happening this week with this uh, January 6th committee. Uh, you've been pretty vocal that you think it's politically short-sighted for President Trump and his supporters to keep hammering home the uh, election fraud of the uh, the 2020 election, that narrative. But uh, I got to get your take on what we're seeing from the January 6th committee thus far. What do you think? A couple of things. Uh, they, they did themselves a disservice by not letting Jim Jordan and Congressman Banks or whatever two formidable, knowledgeable, smart people would have done on the other side. For example, Frank, it does no good if you're a Giant fan, just hearing from Giant fans mm. who think they're going to go undefeated this year. What you need is people to really look at the team to decide what they need. And when you look at the January 6th committee, they keep saying the same thing over and over again. They don't – as soon as they see a 12-second edit of William Barr, I wonder what about the other three, <laughs> four, five hours? What else did he say? And what I'm seeing this stuff is, you know, when you roll clips of his, of his campaign manager saying these things, I know it already. We read it that day. We know that uh, Ivanka uh, and Jared left right after. We know that they didn't think it was rigged. I know that William Barr didn't think it was rigged. So what are you doing? Mm. Now, if Jim Jordan got up there and and like I saw Rachel Maddow, I ran this shot the other day. I didn't. I don't deserve any credit for it. Uh, the producers found it because I don't watch MSNBC that much. But Rachel Maddow says there's a huge difference between having a rally and then going all that distance and then raiding the perimeter of the Capitol. So you at least have to say it's not like the rally was the riot. The rally was allowed, the permits were given, and they were even allowed to go there, but they weren't allowed to breach it. And who are these guys in camouflage? Are the Proud Boys and the others different from Mr. and Mrs. Johnson Mm -hmm. who were upset that Trump lost? You never hear that side. Rachel Maddow said that. So I don't think – I mean, and especially, Frank, 
we're not getting new revelations. If they're going to come out and say uh, Donald Trump needs to be indicted, well, get in line. The Attorney General in New York thinks he needs to be invited. The Attorney General in Georgia wants to see if he was election meddling. There's nothing there. And what you do is you're going to make a judgment on Trump uh, when he runs. He's clearly going to run for re-election uh, to, to run again. So you're going to make it a judgment on Trump. You've already made it. I don't know who you're converting. You really aren't converting. And I think that by, by this is what's killing Liz Cheney. Adam Kinzinger, we know, was in a district that was going to be district you doubted. That's not redemption. That's not because he voted for Trump. That's just where he is in, in, in Illinois. But with Cheney, if Cheney went out and said, listen, I fault Nancy Pelosi when it comes to the security. I have a stats here showing that they requested 20,000 National Guard members. And by the way, this is one thing that isn't true. Trump did say peacefully and patriotically go down. If she had just straddled the line and put her hatred – uh, of Trump aside and stopped acting like Adam Schiff and started acting like the conservative who's upset at the president, I, I think she would have done so much better for herself. Now she's going to lose by about 15 points in a place that her family's treated like royalty. So I, I really think the thing that's hurting them as well is that what are people talking to us about on the radio? Inflation? They're talking about uh, they're talking about now interest rates. They they now all of a sudden they got to put off getting a house or a car. Which by the way you can't get a car because you don't have enough chips to be able to sell them. You go to a, a, a lot instead of five hundred cars, they have five or fifty. So everywhere we're feeling the economic pinch, and we're not we're thinking less and less about January sixth because these aren't the you know these aren't the Trump years. We aren't doing good economically. We aren't worried about trade deals. We're worried about survival and baby formula. So that's really not capturing an additional audience. And now today at twelve, Frank, you're going to be sleeping. Most people are going to be working, right? I'm going to be just who's watching today at noon? A very small subset of people, most of which have already made up their mind. So I think they're making a big error. The other story that's percolating is the amount of money that's going to so-called candidates who believe the election was rigged for against Trump, and they're being supported by Democrats. Democrats, as right. Paul Rove writes in the Wall Street Journal, are financing these fringe candidates to win their primaries to try to give themselves some semblance of survival in November. How cynical is that? It's true. You're even seeing that in New York and New Jersey uh, to some extent. How did you how did you feel about your texts sort of being used in the uh, in the run up to the uh, investigation of this whole thing? There was uh, there's been a lot of attention paid to these text messages that you sent uh, purportedly to Mark Meadows, the president's chief of staff, where you said, uh, again, allegedly that uh, this uh, the president's got to do something and this jeopardizes all of his agenda. How did you feel about that being out there? What you, I'm sure, thought was a private communication being displayed for the whole world? Well, a couple of things. I regret that I was off the next day uh, to explain it, and by the time I came back, they said uh, management said, "Let's just let this go." I'm not embarrassed at all by it. I mean, if if I saw something going wrong, with uh, I, I want to take action. You know, whether it's you know a friend of mine being beat up on the subway, I'm going to jump in. Um, I, I see this going on. I don't think there's any way that to this day that Trump wanted this to happen. And I could not believe I wasn't hearing anything. I, I'm friends with Mark Meadows. I'm, I'm able to get interviews and insight and help help my show. 
on a daily basis by texting Mick Mulvaney, by texting Mark Meadows. Is this true? Uh, you got what is the mood in the White House? So, and they said, yeah. If you ever need anything, call me. You know, I'm a hosting for Tucker. They need answers on something. I go, guys, in the break. Let me just, I'll just text the White House. I don't have that access anymore. I didn't have it with W, but text messages weren't as big back then. Mm-hmm. But I did have people I could call. Uh, thankfully, because I have a, a great job that gives me that allows me to create these relationships. I did not know that Liz Cheney was going to do that. I'm also friends with her. She worked at Fox, so I used to talk to her all the time. And I'm, I thought Dick Cheney did an unbelievable job as Secretary of Defense and Vice President. Not perfect, but man, is he smart and experienced. So I got friendly with him, but I don't have a cell. But I have Liz's cell. She would she would often say to me, "I'll get you an answer." I was shocked that they let it out, but I'm not embarrassed about the context. I care about the country first. Can we please get these lunatics out of the Capitol? You know, and when you chant, I hang Mike Pence, that's a little bit of a problem. You know, I'll, be, I'll tell you guys. I text Mark Short, too. I go, Mark, is the vice president okay? He's the chief of staff of the vice president. Why should I be embarrassed by that? I I, I don't think I should. Uh, do you, I mean, do you? No, no, certainly not. Uh, certainly not. Uh, but uh, again, sometimes uh, people just aren't crazy about the idea of, of private communications being uh, or mess- communications that are intended to be private being displayed for the world. Speaking of Mike Pence, apparently the hearing today is going to focus mostly on on his role in this whole thing. When this is all said and done, and, you know, Mike Pence may very well be a presidential candidate himself, if not in 2024, uh, sometime after that. When this is all said and done, how do you think Pence comes out looking? Well, Trump, uh, you know, people are going to be people, you know, the Trump people listening to me right now, and a lot of them listen to you. And congratulations on the success of your show. Thank you. Everybody's talking Appreciate about it. it. Um, but, um I think that people are always going to side with uh, with Trump over Pence. He's more famous. He's more popular. But there, uh, but I thought uh, Mike Pence taking command, uh, trying to end this riot. Uh, you know, uh, not running from the Capitol building, doing what he was supposed to do. He had no control. I don't care what Steve Bannon says. He had no control. He did the right thing. I think he looks good. I think he's going to run for president. Uh, if he goes against Trump, he won't have a shot. But anybody listening to President, anybody who likes President Trump, who thinks that the vice president wasn't one or two of the most important people to President Trump during this entire time, if think about him running the pandemic operations compared to Kamala Harris, he's as good. He was as Dick Cheney was as valuable to Bush as Mike Pence was more valuable to Trump, and it bothers me that you know that Trump's. Turned on him to the degree he was and asked him to do something he wasn't capable of doing. I thought that he came out looking great. How do you think? Do uh, you well, think? I mean, look, I think uh, we'll see what the, these hearings uh, display. But I, I agree with you. I, I don't understand the notion that uh, that he had discretion to choose which electoral votes to count. I, I mean, to me, it makes no sense. And I'm surprised. And, and I voted for President Trump twice. But I'm surprised so many dyed-in-the-wool uh, Trumpians subscribe to that narrative. I, I just don't get it. Uh, before I let you go, I got to get your take on what happened in Texas. We see uh, a, a seat that has been a Democrat for, I think, over a century. Um, Republicans picked that up, and this seems to be the latest episode of a trend of Hispanic voters. And we saw this in Florida, and we've seen this in a lot of different uh, places around the country moving towards the Republican side. In your view, is this a result of the Democrats uh, sort of taking the Hispanic vote for granted and not understanding what Hispanic voters really care about? Or is this a result of successful outreach on the part of the Republicans? 
Uh, I think it's anti-Democrat, uh, and I think it's just clear that Republicans do want the border enforced, uh, do go for family values, even though they don't demonstrate it in everything they do. Um, uh, you know, I, I do think that they offer all hard work and capitalism, but they're not doing it to woo Hispanics. They're doing it because that's who they are. And I'm not saying there's no socialist among the, the Trump fans. There's no socialist that I know of that are Republican. So most of these men and women are fleeing horrible governmental situations uh, outside the gang members and the MS-13. They're all over Long Island listening to us right now. But I just think that they what they present is something that is more towards traditional Hispanics. What they what I think Democrats thought is they were going to retain the Hispanic vote if they continue to fight for their instant citizenship, like they retained for mysteriously the Jewish vote in America because Harry Truman was the one to deliver Israel as a uh, as a country and homeland. He delivered at the UN after World War II, and forevermore Democrats get credit for these. They they can Republicans, despite that they're much more loyal uh, to the Israelis. The American Jewish vote always goes to Democrats. They thought they were going to get that. And, Frank, my theory is that the only way to, to enforce that border is for Democrats to realize every person that comes across will eventually be Republican. All of a sudden, you're going to watch Chuck Schumer with a screw gun putting up that wall uh, on the southern border. He's going to go, you know what I thought of it? Our security does matter. So that's, that's very maybe funny. some level it'll work. That's very funny. Hey, uh, there's been a lot of criticism of this new Saudi golf tour, and I've been critical of the Saudi government very much so. But I, I thought it was wrong for the PGA to suspend the golfers that have um, agreed to participate in this Saudi-backed golf tournament. Uh, give me your take on this in a nutshell. My take, and I'm, I'm kind of friendly with Greg Norman, uh, my take is this. This is more USFL against the NFL in the 80s. Uh, this is more WFL in the 70s taking on the NFL. This is more the ABA taking on the NBA than it is the Saudis against the Americans. And I, I, I was stunned to see that, you know, the, the PGA allows the, the Saudis fund the European tour. That's perfectly okay. The Saudis have their own tournament. That's perfectly okay. Uh, we know the, the, the UAE does not allow, uh, makes it, if you're gay, excuse me, in Qatar, if you're gay, it's illegal. Uh, they use slave labor to build the World Cup stadium, but FIFA is a-okay with that. <laughs> I mean, we're watching Manchester City owned by these uh, Arab family members, these royal family members over the UAE. We know that Newcastle FC is being bought by one of these Saudi princes. Nobody has any problem with that. But when a world sport, which is golf, decides to start their own league fronted by an American legend, uh, we all of a sudden say, well, that's got to stop. Really? Well, the president's going there in two weeks to beg them to pump oil. Really? We just supplied them with a cutting-edge weapon system to prevent rockets coming there from Iran and from Yemen. Really? We, uh, we now use them as a wedge uh, to, to make the Abraham Accords work as more and more of these Arab nations start recognizing Israel's right to exist. So all of a sudden, when it comes to golf, that's where the rubber hits right, the road. Right. It, Come it's, on, it's, it's guys. Absurd. Really? It's absurd. Hey, what's coming up on uh, television, on Fox and Friends? What's coming up on radio from 10 a.m. to noon? Well, John Castamatidis, who owns, uh, owns WABC, is going to be him. joining me at 630 yeah. uh, he, uh, on, on TV. He's going to be talking about owning refineries as well as supermarkets and what the president's letter meant yesterday when it comes to oil and gas. Um, we're also on on radio, we're going to have Tom Glavin, uh, the legendary pitcher. Cool. Uh, he's going to be talking about this this celebrity golf league, ironically. Congressman Jim Banks, why he's not on the tour. 
uh, why he's not on that uh, January 6th committee, which goes back today at noon. And we'll talk about the economy with Brian Rotella and talk about this re- Republican quest to take the Hispanic vote with Rich Lowry. Brian, coming your way. it's always a treat to be able to spend uh, the morning with you. Uh, we'll be watching on TV and listening on radio. Thanks again. Uh, Congratulations to all you uh, have done, Frank. Keep it going. Appreciate it. Brian Kilmeade, uh, if you watch Fox & Friends this morning, uh, you can see our boss, our owner, El Capitan, John Katzmatidis at 630, and uh, catch Brian on radio from 10 a.m. to noon right after Bernie and Sid. 15 seconds of fame next. Uh, Your calls on any thoughts, any suggestions, any comments, any questions, 800-848-9222. Straight ahead. WABC. Thank you, Andy Beam, uh, for our illustrious theme song. Uh, it was great to talk with Brian Kilmeade. I'm sorry we didn't get into the Ukraine issue because um, that is an issue where we, I think, certainly part company on. And uh, we'll bring, well, I'll bring that up with him first next week. But uh, with the January 6th committee being such a, a big story now, I had to get his take on that. And now I want to get your take on anything you want to comment on. 800-848-WABC. 15 seconds to say whatever you like. It's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Daniel in Brooklyn. You know, Frank, uh, uh, I want to tell you this. Acting Governor Kathy Hochul is running away with this gubernatorial election. Do you know what would happen if we have four years of a liberal paradise state here? Fred in Yonkers. Hey, Frank, great segment on Frantic City. I was wondering these days... If a straight flush would need its own pronoun, the Goyles will never know. <laughs> Gary on Staten Island. Let us turn our weapons of war into plowshares. These words are inscribed uh, on the Isaiah Wall across the street from the U.N. Let us turn our weapons of war into plowshares. Roger in Massachusetts. Yeah, I hope you thoroughly enjoy this upcoming Birthing Persons Partners Day, along with many, many more into the future. And finally, uh, Tommy in Brooklyn. I, uh, If we want to change the thinking of the world, we need to look inside ourselves and give credence to the good. Stop the hate and read love. God bless you all, and happy Father's Day. Thank you. All right. Uh, Deb Valentine in the early news coming up next. Bernie and Sid from 6 to 10 featuring Bill O'Reilly. I'll be back tomorrow at 1 a.m. with Ask Frank Anything and Dr. Sky. Frank Moreno, good day.